What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. We have got a wonderful, just hell of a chat today, honestly. We did, we did this on Clint Russell's podcast on Liberty Lockdown at the end of last week. If you have not checked it out, this is one not to miss. He does a lot of commentary on everything that's going on in the world with the insanity in the financial markets and the bond markets and on the political playing field. And uh, we got together on Friday. It was myself, Greg Foss, and Clint. Uh, and we just, we went on a two-hour rampage on what is happening in the world. And this one will go down in Bitcoin Audible history as chat 73 WTF is happening in 2022. So really quick, I just want to thank the makers of the f***ing cold card. GuySwan.com slash cold card. CoinKite is the Bitcoin-only hardware solution to all of your Bitcoin hardware problems. And the team at Swan Bitcoin. Go to SwanBitcoin.com slash guy is the best place to buy and learn about Bitcoin that there is. And they're also hosting an epic Bitcoin conference in just a month now. It is in LA, November 10th and 11th. 20% off your tickets with code GUYS. Guys, this is not a joke. And of course, Fold. The only way to do fiat is to get paid sats to do fiat. The Fold debit card gets you sats back on literally everything in your life. Getting sats back on your health insurance is a feeling that you just have to experience to understand. Go to guyswan.com fold. Everything right there in the show notes. With that, I will hand this over to Clint for chat 73, WTF is happening in 2022. Liberty lockdown, please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go? It requires a fight, not tweeting from your phone. Don't need a king, get him off the fucking throne. If you're riding with the thought, you've always got a home. The virus is scared of, will come and it'll go. The government knows, just don't get treated like a hoe. Boy, I need some whiskey in my morning looking at these stocks, folks. I am so sorry. I tried to stop them. Uh, <laughs> I spent the past two years advocating against every single... Uh, not past two years, shit. Uh, past 20 years advocating as vociferously as possible against the uh, trajectory of both our central banks as well as our government, and I have failed. I have failed you. I apologize. Um, but today I have on... Two experts of their own variety to help round out my expertise in the mortgage field. And I think that it will uh, enlighten not just you guys, but myself as well. And that's why I, I love being in the position I'm in, because I get to bring in people that are smarter in certain areas of the economy than I am. And I think between the three of us, we might actually be able to get a handle on this completely, completely and utterly broken economic model. Ugh, I am so sorry. <laughs> but it's going to be interesting. I promise you that. Uh, before we get started, I want to thank our sponsor. And as always, that is Expat Money Summit. They're an upcoming online summit by my friend, Mikhail Thorup from expatmoney.com with over 30 experts who are focused on moving your life, business, and wealth offshore. It costs you nothing. It's free to attend. Just added to the lineup, the great Dr. Ron Paul, expatmoneysummit.com. Reclaim your freedom from chaos and uncertainty. Topics will include how to secure your own plan B safe haven, 
how to use foreign currencies, offshore banking, and decentralized finance to safeguard your money, I would highly encourage you guys to attend this. It doesn't cost you anything. It's multi-days, incredible speakers, and uh, now's the time. If you don't have a plan B, I would I would encourage you to get one. Honestly, I would. Uh, they also teach you how to get a second passport to travel the globe without restrictions and get in and out of different countries' borders. You will also learn about a libertarian island haven, private cities, communities on the ocean, and food and energy independent towns in Latin America. Register now for free at expatmoneysummit.com. This is your way to fight back against what is happening in the world. Stand up, protect yourself, and find out how to secure your new life abroad. Register now for free at expatmoneysummit.com. Without further ado, the men of the hour, bond trader extraordinaire, Mr. Greg Foss. Welcome in, sir. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. And as I describe him, a crypto expert, his followers, as well as he, prefer to be referred to as a Bitcoin expert. But this guy has studied every crypto. So why would I not call him a crypto expert? I don't understand the pushback. Anyways, Guy Swan, welcome in. <laughs> oh, what's up, man? Uh, <laughs> having a terrible time. Not happy to be here. And no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> he is a crypto expert. I don't care what you people say. <laughs> Oh. Crypto is a dirty word. Crypto is a dirty <laughs> word. I used, my show even used to be called the crypto economy. And then it's like they stole it. You know, crypto used to mean cryptography. And it was great. Yeah. It was a great short, short form. And then it became it's not synonymous with ICOs and blockchain I know, I know. bullshit. And, and it just got <laughs> it got hard. You got you got to got to walk it back. <laughs> so obviously there's blood in the streets. There's uh, red across the board. There's as much red on this board has uh, filled the backdrop of Joe Biden's most recent address to the nation, which was Ooh, extraordinarily concerning. Um, on both fronts, it's concerning. So I don't know where to start on this, to be honest. Um, I guess we could just talk, I guess, macro, what risks are you guys seeing and and what opportunities, But uh, and we'll just kind of figure out where to go from there. Greg, go ahead and start us off. What are you, how are you feeling, man? All right, well... It's great to be on with Guy. Guy and I have uh, been at conferences together. Uh, in fact, I think he's read some of my uh, research papers. Uh, I appreciate his knowledge in this space. Um, so I'm a 35-year credit veteran. I always start my macro analysis with the credit markets because very simply, credit runs the world. I'm sure your listeners know that credit markets are about four times as large as equity markets. And if you don't understand what's happening in the markets that actually have a prior claim on your equity, then you're a buffoon. You shouldn't be trading equities if you don't understand what's going on in credit. Because very simply, in the case of a company, if the bonds of a company are not worth 100 cents on the dollar, the equity is worth zero. Okay, that's called priority of claims, capital structure, arbitrage. So I spent my life in the pits trading junk bonds and frequently I would sell the equity of the junk bond as a hedge against the bond I owed, not on a owned, not on a dollar for dollar basis, but on what's called a delta hedge in order for you to hedge your risk in the event of financial distress. Now, that trade occurs everywhere on Wall Street right now, just outside the purview of the noobs who are trading regular equities. The truth is credit is running the world in times like this, particularly when the VIX gets elevated and the VIX at around 30% annualized indicates elevated stress in the equity markets. Simple enough to say, Clint, don't look at equities for guidance. Look at credit. Credit is running the world at this point in time. So 
I actually sent out a tweet this morning that I can't believe I've never done this before, but I, I rolled out the things I look at on a daily basis, running from top to bottom in terms of a risk, evaluating risk in the markets. And of course, it focuses on credit and it ends with equity, meaning I'll start with the 10-year bond yields around the world. I'll look at credit spreads, including high yield, investment grade. I'll look at CDX. I'll look at European crossover. I'll look at sovereign credit default swaps. Then I'll move down to the first layer of equities, which is the VIX, okay? I don't even look at the equity index. I look at what the volatility is on that index because that ind indicates a level of concern in the market. Then after about six steps, I'll look down to individual equities. I don't care what's happening in, that, in there unless I know what's happening in the top part of the capital structure. So very simply, that's how I evaluate the risk in markets right now. And I'm going to summarize it for you equity listeners. Credit is very concerned with the direction of the global macro economy. And when credit is concerned, since credit is the dog and equity is the tail, the tail of the dog gets flung around, around like a rag doll. Very simply. Okay. And that's what's happening right now. Final note, when the VIX is above 30, to make the math easy, to be at 32 annualized, to get a daily volatility, you just take the square root of the number of trading days in the year, which is 256, to get what daily vol is. And that's 32 divided by 16 indicates a 2% daily swing on average in equity prices. That's why... Mm -hmm. Things go up and down really quickly and they can open in the green and close on the red. And you're like, what the heck happened? Well, what happened is called volatility. And when it's at 2%, things swing from green to red pretty quickly. So don't try and overthink things. If you are not looking at the credit markets, you are flying blind. Just 35 years of experience speaking there, my experience, and I'm not saying I'm a great trader. What I have done is survived in the pits. And I sort of put together this uh, layering of risk analysis. It, it, it filters and uh, funnels things very, uh, very nicely for me. So again, to summarize, we are in big trouble, people. What just happened in the uh, UK with their uh, treasury bonds and uh, called gilts, uh, that's a warning sign. And I'm going to leave you with two names that you have to keep on your screen right now for the next year. Credit Suisse as an equity. You can follow what's happening. And Deutsche Bank. Two very large, systemically important uh, financial institutions that are both on the ropes. Okay. Now I could go into more detail on that if you want, but over to Guy. Um, because that's from a credit lens. I have survived by starting with credit and not worrying about what equities are doing because credit at times like this runs the world. Thanks. No, that was incredible. Yeah, and the, the primary reason I wanted to have you on, Greg, is because uh, my expertise is also credit, but on the, the private mortgage level, um, and I, I have never traded bonds personally, so... I knew that you would help round round me out big time. Uh, Guy, obviously, being an expert in crypto, uh, if you could tell us uh, a little bit about what you're seeing there and, and moreover, I know you look at the economy in a more broad scope than that. 
Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the Bills do. Um, <laughs> that's that's yeah. where we are. The Bills do. Um, like, we have taken a series of crises and we have papered over them with more debt. We've worsened all of the problems and we have pushed the issue further out into the future until what Foss is talking about, until the credit markets just implode. Um, and what's hilarious is that we're seeing it. It's so broad. It's across the entire financial world. Um, like even, I mean, China, like everything, everything is so over financialized. And so it's almost, it's almost psychotic when you look at it from a historical perspective, how in lockstep the entire world has moved in this incredibly misallocated, like, terrible terrible direction from a monetary perspective like everything has happened all at once like in the last 40 years we have moved from broadly as a globe like like as an entire planet we have moved from a an economy where next like this month's groceries this month's supply is paid for by last month's sales to this month's supply is financed by paying off last month's finance. <laughs> and we have just moved from a perpetual savings to new supply to perpetual debt to get the next supply. And really, we've kind of stretched this out to a, now we're like two months, three months financed out. Like, like our supply is financed multiple cycles ahead of time, and we're leveraging the finance that we did last time because we didn't fully pay it off. And now we've hit supply chain issues. Like when you're in a system like that, this is why the government talks about this and, and why everybody, the fractional reserve system and this idea of constantly leveraging to try to get to the next step, to, to make it, to make it, uh, to maintain last, last season's uh, leveraging, uh, the last season's debt, you get in this place where literally you cannot survive if you don't grow. This is why the economy can't just be still. It's not mm. possible. If everybody had savings, if, if we were actually working on a surplus system where what we made in the economy was a net positive, you could. You could just pause. Everybody could just like not go to work for a few days, and <laughs> things wouldn't implode because we would have surplus. We would have savings. We would have resources that we had already made that we are using, but we don't have that anymore. We've completely just wiped out that system into a financialized, like derivatives on top of derivatives, hoping to make it look like we have the resources that we have. And as long as we can keep the machine pushing, as long as we just keep it moving forward and we don't stop and look around, everything won't fall apart. But then the lockdowns happen. Then, then government stupidity on an exponential scale occurred because of a cold. And <laughs> we have just, there's, there's, the bill is due. The bill is due. We have reached a point where we cannot paper over it anymore. And then we have exacerbated that multiple times over with bad government policy, horrible reactions to this virus. Um, I mean, just, the lockdowns, the capital controls, like everything is splintering apart at the exact same time. It's absolutely insane. 
And what's funny is that is is quote unquote bad as Bitcoin is doing right now in this environment because it's had being uh, it's being treated as a risk asset, right? So when the government is actively debasing the money and actively printing, it behaves a lot like an equity. You know, like it's going up in price and then interest rates go up and uh, there's deleveraging events and you start clearing out a lot of this easy money and it falls in price. Um, so it's behaving a lot like a risk asset. And I think that will happen. I think that will continue to happen for a while longer before it starts to decouple. And the reason I think it will decouple is because the fi global financial rails are being used as a weapon, being used as a political tool of control rather than as, as a way to facilitate trade. F SWIFT is being used as a way to attack Russia, attack Iran, attack other countries right now with critical resources. And the, the political splintering that's happening across the world, like the, the cohesion and the semblance of like, oh, we now have a safe global trading environment is falling apart rapidly. And as that falls apart, all of these countries, we're in this weird environment where we've globalized in a way that has never been possible before in history. And in doing so, we have, we have just like you have like certain people in an economy will specialize. You'll have one person will do, you know, I do the graphic design and this other person does the, gets the resources and this other person makes the resources into the thing. Like we hyper specialize down to like micro tasks, but nobody knows how to do any, the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Nobody has, knows how to do any of it, really. It's only because we're trading that the whole apparatus even slightly works. Well, we've done that with countries. We've specialized as countries. There are whole countries whose entire economy is based on the fact that they can export lithium. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. they, don't, they can't grow food. They can't produce energy, but they can export lithium. And they can import everything else. You know, like we have done that across the board because of this soft environment for trading and everybody's on the same page and the global financial system is just kind of partially neutral and they only kind of screw over third world countries and you know countries that quote unquote don't matter in the modern world so they, they've gotten away with the u.s has gotten away with using it tentatively as a weapon but now that things are breaking apart in the modern world things are breaking apart between the eu and the us and the russia and like major producers and uh we've got the BRICS nations basically starting to put up their dukes and say eh, we're going to put we're going to give nato a run for their money and nato's falling apart and the energy crisis is occurring because we've invested in a bunch of windmills and you know sometimes the wind doesn't fucking blow and you got to use oil and methane um or natural gas, uh, as this whole structure just begins to implode because it's built on excessive fragility and interdependence, and then our networks to trade with each other are falling apart. Mm -hmm. The solution to that, literally the solution to that, is a radically neutral money, is mm -hmm. a money that does not, does not have these political counterparty risks. And... That is the only way I think we'll actually we will either realize the value of Bitcoin or we will implode. And it's yeah. not as if it's not as if Bitcoin is just this, um, you know, this cure all pill that's just going to fix everything because we still have to figure out how to manage trade networks. But at least we would only have to manage the physical side of things. 
We would only have to manage how to build our ships and get products from one place to another, which we know how to do. We just need to do it in the adversarial environment. But if the money doesn't even work, it doesn't matter what you do on the physical side. If you can't exchange the value on the other right. side and it's based on the trusted political institutions of your area or your jurisdiction, nothing's ever going to work. We either have a radically neutral money to replace SWIFT. We act, we, we either create an open permissionless infrastructure for this or the whole shit falls apart. And it looks nasty. It looks really nasty if we don't do uh, something. I, I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one here that uh, noticed the corollary between what you were describing and a late stage Ponzi scheme. And <laughs> what, what, what makes this unique is that it's a, a late stage Ponzi scheme, but with the global economy being that late-stage Ponzi scheme. so but it might be uh, the whole thing everywhere, all yeah, of it. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's really horrifying. And, and what makes this so unique, and I think that you you touched on it, is that this is global in nature. You know, this is not, this is, there is really no escape hatch for the most part. Uh, obviously, Bitcoin could possibly be that on the individual level, and hopefully it can be a tool that assists us finding some level of glide path uh, on the macro level, but at, at this point, I don't think that its adoption level is there that it can actually serve as a parachute for most, um, and and that's highly concerning. Uh, for those that aren't familiar, what's what's very unique about what I'm witnessing is that even though the U.S. is uh, behaving in a profligate manner, still borrowing and spending in a very aggressive way, um, they have the central bank. Uh, you know, the Federal Reserve has began to hike rates and and start allegedly with quantitative tightening. Uh, obviously, there's some consternation and and disagreement as to whether or not they are in fact doing so. Um, so I would like to to get Greg's input on that. But but before I do, I wanted to to point out what's interesting is that if you look at our allies, you have the Canadian dollar, the Australian dollar, the you know the euro, the, uh, the ECB, the the pound. They comparatively, uh, and I, this this could just line up perfectly with the dollar milkshake theory, where the U.S. dollar will be the last to go. And and as I've followed that theory, the more convinced I become of its accuracy. That that regardless of the fact that the U.S. dollar is is um, obviously being printed and borrowed into oblivion, just like all these other fiat currencies, uh, it does appear that it will be the last to go. So uh, hop in there wherever you'd like, Greg. Well, that's a great uh, segue because I agree with the same uh, analysis. Yes, the U.S. dollar will be the last fiat to fail, but ultimately all fiats fail, right? Um, it's uh, You mentioned the Ponzi. So, yeah, let's call it what it is, the fiat Ponzi. Now, the important thing to remember is FX or foreign exchange trades on a relative basis. So let's start with the fact that all fiats are melting ice cubes. That's just because of the debt metrics that guy laid out and when you have certain leverage in the system you essentially have to print money to solve the debt spiral that's pure mathematics grade 11 math is my tagline um but the u.s dollar is being debased because of the debt metrics and it trades against other melting ice cube fiat currencies out there and its rate of decay is just less than the other fiat so there's a trading expression. The U.S. dollar is the best horse at the glue factory or, you know, the best crack on a on a on a crack street. Like 
uh, the best crack house rather on a crack street. Uh, it's nothing to be proud of, but yes, it will be the last fiat to fail. Why is it going to fail? Well, again, it's pure mathematics. It's when you have a total amount of debt that is growing organically due to its interest coupon faster than your tax revenue base, which is your GDP, can possibly grow. So guys like uh, Brent Johnson from uh, Santiago Capital or Santiago Fund, uh, the milkshake theory, Luke Broman, uh, laying out the debt metrics very simply. So remember, fiat, yes, is nothing but confidence. And when you lose confidence in that fiat, it will be successive countries, unfortunately, Canada included, that will lose the confidence before the greenback. That's how markets work. And it's reflected in the fact that the U.S. dollar is firstly the petrodollar and secondly, the largest uh, economy in the world backed by the world's strongest military. That's what fiat currency is. But when is there a solution? Yes, in my opinion, there is. And it's a parallel network that develops uh, called Bitcoin, where over time, a country will actually embrace Bitcoin as their store of value savings account. And the fiat currency will be like your checking account because fiat is still good for international trade. Like you have to, you don't have to avoid or you can avoid barter, uh, you know, trading two cows for a horse. So, well, we'll just use fiat. The reality is the first nation, G7 nation, to adopt Bitcoin as a treasury reserve asset will be the nation that puts its citizens at a place where in the future that fiat for that country can be backed by the most secure store of value ever created by man, which is Bitcoin. So that's the glide path. Does it happen suddenly? Well, if we hit the wall because Jerome Powell drives us into that wall because of the inflationary fighting that, re that requires him to raise interest rates, which makes the U.S. dollar more attractive for foreigners to hold U.S. dollars to earn a U.S. dollar interest rate, it causes all the other fiats to de debase quicker. That's what we're, uh, what we're experiencing right now. So... I just want to go back to Guy's uh, description of what's happened over time. Please do. I have been trading for, as I've said, 35 years. My first crisis was Latin American debt crisis in 1988, okay? Mm -hmm. And I actually had come back from the U.S. I went to school uh, for an MBA at Cornell University. Great school, you know, met a ton of great Americans, understood the difference between Canada and the USA, and came back to Canada to work in Canada's largest bank. One of my first projects for the Royal Bank of Canada was to evaluate the Latin American debt portfolio of the Royal Bank of Canada. Now, I won't go into the mathematics, but it's pretty simple. But after about half an hour, I was able to determine that the Royal Bank of Canada was insolvent, which for your viewers is to say that if we had marked to market the Latin American trading book, or the Latin American loan book, marked to market like a trading book, the losses that would have been incurred that would have to be written off against the book value of equity of, would have vaporized the entire book value of equity of the Royal Bank of Canada. Jeez. Well, that's pretty scary. All right. So I go to the CFO and I say, Emil, uh, we have a problem. He goes, I know. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> 
And I'm like, what the absolute fuck, right? Like I had just spent six years at school, four years in engineering in Canada, two years in eng- at, at uh, MBA school in the USA. And I'd never been told that our financial system is built on sand. Why is it built on sand? And it's not just Canada. And by the way, I will add, Canada and the Royal Bank of Canada was reflected exactly the same way with all money center banks in New York. So Manufacturers Hanover, Chase Manhattan, Bankers Trust, all these banks that many of them have uh, combined right now to into a JP Morgan Goliath, they were all levered the same way to Latin American debt and they were all insolvent as well, which is why Treasury Secretary Nicholas Brady had to invoke what was called the Brady Plan. Now, I'm old. This is 1988. I, I'm dating myself. But look, that's when I first realized fiat is the Ponzi. And why is fiat the Ponzi around the world? Because they all have the same banking system built on leverage where an average bank only holds about $4 of risk-absorbing equity capital for every $100 of loans it makes, meaning there's $96 of depositors' money in there. And if the value of that loan declines by more than 4%, the equity is essentially gone. And you're working on depositors' money, and the losses would accrue to a depositor. That so just is a tw- just a just a 25x leverage. That, uh, and can you imagine? And by the way, that's only on balance sheet assets. I don't even bring in the off balance sheet derivatives. Right. and all, So that's why I brought up Credit Suisse and Deutsche Bank. Because after that, I lived through long-term capital management, which was, to all, with all due respect to your Nobel laureate winning economists in the USA, no, uh, long-term capital management had two Nobel prize winners on their board. And... They decided that they would sell volatility or sell insurance to Wall Street. And by the way, we're going to do this based on only seven years of data. What? Your (laughs) your entire business model is based on seven years of data because that's as long as the VIX had been out there. Mm. Oh, and we're going to lever it 100 to 1. Oh, my God. What the fuck? (laughs) Guys, this is unbelievable. So that was long-term capital management. Okay, that's the next one that had to get the can kicked down the road. So then we hit the great financial crisis. Now, that was really scary. But to put things in context, only $900 billion was printed for the great financial crisis. Then came COVID. Well, the USA did about $7 trillion. And globally, we did a cumulative amount of 30 trillion US dollars of printing, kicking the can. They'd solved nothing. All they've done is added to this big debt balloon that is getting more precarious and more precarious. So yes, the COVID crisis was an absolute cluster screw up. There's no question in terms of pushing on the gas too much. Powell, he is a knucklehead, okay? He should not be sitting in the most important risk chair in the world. He's managing it like an absolute child. He's looking at rearview mirror metrics, but we're in big trouble, people. I can't say it any other way. And it is being reflected in the markets right now, particularly in the credit market. So, you know, all of this comes back to first principles, amount of leverage in the system. Fiat is trust built on a very unstable foundation. As soon as that trust leaves, 
That's when things crumble. That's where we are. Thank goodness, though, in 2000, in the great financial crisis, Satoshi invented Bitcoin. Okay. And Bitcoin was designed for times like this. And that is why I think there will be a decoupling guy perhaps sooner than later. Because I have always argued Bitcoin is your insurance policy. And to be yeah. clear with all your listeners, I don't want the USA to fail. Okay. Very clear. I don't. I'm Canada. We're living rent-free in your attic. Okay. We are the luckiest <laughs> fucking nation in the world living rent-free in the attic of the most powerful economy in the world. We don't need to have a military. You guys have it covered. And we have a great economy, great cross-border, no, uh, you know, world's longest undefended border. And we're going to fail 10 years before the USA fails. That's just my guesstimate. Now, we have a buffoon as a prime minister, okay? There's no doubt about that. So both of our countries have their management challenges, let's put it that way. But the math of Canada right now is absolutely putrid. The funny thing is the credit rating agencies still have Canada rated higher than the United States, which is to say they view Canada as being a lower risk of default than the USA. And I say... All you have to do is go out into something called the credit default swap market, which was, by the way, the, the it was the alarm bells that rang during the great financial crisis on subprime mortgages. The, the CDS markets, Canada versus the USA, Canada trades as if it is three credit notches worse than the USA, but mm -hmm. the rating agency still has it rated better. What? Have we seen this movie before? Yeah, I think we have plenty Be of careful times. people. You need your insurance. Guy and I are absolutely aligned on that. And then Guy is too polite to say this. There's Bitcoin and then there's shit coins. Okay. And Bitcoin is the only digital asset that is actually designed to solve the Fiat Ponzi to be used as protection against the, uh, the collapse of Fiat and all those other altcoins are nothing more than digital fiat type of scenarios. They're centralized. They have right. no monetary cap. All of the problems recreated on this other shitcoin platform called ERC-20. And so be careful out there, people. Own your insurance on the fiat Ponzi. And the only way you can do that, in my opinion, in the digital asset world is with Bitcoin. One final thing. I'm sorry, Clint. I'm not sure. saying you have to be all in on Bitcoin, but just be careful that you own other hard assets as well. So that includes things like commodities, oil, gold, silver. All of these things provide protection against the fiat Ponzi. What doesn't provide protection is bonds. And bonds have had their worst performance in their history mm. year to date. That's all global bonds. But here's the scary thing. In the UK, which caused the collapse, their long bond fell by more than 50% in value in 90 days. Can you imagine being a pensioner that had their money in long UK gilts, 30-year gilts, and the price of that bond went from 100 cents on the dollar to 40 cents on the dollar since your last statement? You open the statement now and you're like, well... My retirement isn't looking so friggin' good. Well, and that, and that was that was viewed as your conservative 
uh, aspect that of your portfolio. Your, that was your risk-free asset. Okay. Right. So this is the problem. You have credit rating agencies that are giving you false ratings. You have leverage metrics that everyone says bonds are your risk-free. Your 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 risk. You know your your balancing when equities go down, bond prices tend to go up. Yeah, that was true. But interest rates went all the way down to close to zero. That was the bottom. You can't, you know, you can only push on a string for so long. So we just have gotten to a point with a macro system that is over levered. Everyone has the same problems. The banks are exactly structured the same way. And risk buckets are performing as bad as they ever have. First time in history that the NASDAQ has been down double digits and bonds have also been down double digits in the same quarter. Oh boy, that leaves a mark and that leaves a mark on pension funds, on endowments, on family offices. That's why there's a little bit of red on your screen today, Clint. Although when I last glanced, things seem to be stabilizing, but it's a Friday and an old mm. trader adage Rookies trade the open and pros trade the close. Okay. <laughs> I don't give a shit how they opened it on this Friday. I just care how they're going to close equities. Okay. Certainly. Because why? We're heading into a long weekend and bad shit tends to happen on a long week, a skirt on a weekend. And Mondays are your days where, you know, you've had the whole weekend to worry about stuff. So sorry, guy, over to you. But this is one crazy market. I have not been this worried about financial stability since 2008, 2009. And I had a great run in 2008 and 2009, and I still hated my job. I didn't mm -hmm. want to see the world ending, and we had positions on which were benefiting by the world ending, and I still hated to see the world ending. Of course. It's ending because of mismanagement, fiscal mismanagement, monetary mismanagement by people who are in risk chairs that should not be in that chair. Well, you described it as uh, as Canada living rent-free in our attic. Uh, I, I have deep concerns that under Trudeau's uh, leadership, quote-unquote, that you may be Anne Frank instead. Um, so uh, be, be cautious up there, brother. Uh, hiding so in the attic. <laughs> yes, exactly. I think you guys are actually hiding in our, in our attic. Um, wow, it, that was a, a fantastic uh, recap of the multiple financial crises that we have experienced throughout my lifetime and and um, the can kicking that has occurred. And I do not see necessarily the capacity to kick that can again, primarily because of the inflationary pressures that we're now yeah. experiencing. Like, like the trade-off is essentially you attempt to kick the can by starting QE, turning on the printing press, reducing interest rates, and and you think that that can actually delay the day of reckoning, but you have the opposite side where the, the monetary inflation and the price inflation strikes the consumer and the people with pitchforks and the voters so severely that that, that no longer becomes a tenable pathway. And, and I think that what we're really up against is do the central banks fear the people enough to do what's necessary to defend fiat in the face of derivatives and banking and everything else blowing up fucking simultaneously i don't know i don't know what the answer is there and it's a it's a fascinating conundrum because you have to imagine that there are competing cabals of interests 
within the, the highest levels of finance and central banking that some want to see fiat defended and some want to see it die. And I don't know who is actually in control of the levers of power at this point and if the central bank digital currency is ready for showtime to the extent that they can actually take that path. My suspicion is that it's not, and that is the reason that Powell is delaying the day of reckoning by trying to hike interest rates and be the best of the worst. Uh, Guy, hop in wherever you'd yeah. like on that. Yeah, I think uh, I think part of what Powell is doing is they're they're kind of fighting the ECB. They're 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 kind of they're fighting against the the waves that are happening everywhere. But the the issue is that when they raise interest rates, like this can only last as long as the government doesn't need to sell bonds to fund what they're up to. You know, you think about how quickly this could come. I mean, the amount of debt that we have and the amount of debt that the government is regularly like, I don't know what the number is for 2022, but the debt that the government is going to have to roll over um, and, you know, reissue at the new interest rates. Like, this is why I don't believe that this can last. No, um, that's like, I have the number, guy. It's it's about uh, one. Yeah. One third of the total amount of debt, which is uh, 30 trillion. So uh, you got 10 trillion. No. Well, you say that needs to roll over in the next two years. So 10, next 10 trillion, years. 10 trillion needs to roll ah. in the next two years. But that doesn't even include all the money that Jesus. needs to be that, that needs to fund the deficit. The new. Yeah. As well as the interest that's actually growing on the old debt. So, the old debt. you know, over to you, though. I don't want to take your thunder. Keep yeah. it up. Go ahead. Basically, though, and I'm I was actually going to ask if you might have had the number. So I, I very much appreciate that. Um, but. Thinking about it in the context of. Whether the United States can fund anything like I don't see how. Pal stays aggressive. He stays hawkish like like this. This this has a time limit, an aggressive so time. You're limit. totally right. There's two paths. One mm -hmm. is accept inflation, mm -hmm. okay, or the other one is global depression. Yeah, it's only mathematics, guys. You cannot yeah. change the base layer of ma of language, which is math. Yeah. Either way, the USA has painted itself into a corner because of the mathematics of the debt spiral that Guy is talking about. And I could run you guys through it. I don't need to trust guys like Luke Roman. Others like Lynn Alden that do the same mathematics. I just know as simple as this. You don't change math and they can continue this going as long as people show up to the auction to buy the bonds, guy. That is the critical thing. So you got to watch how bond auctions, treasury bond auctions are being received, not just with how many people show up but also the price at which they're willing to buy the bonds reflected in a yield on the new issue. But that's where it gets scary because right now the USA is not even covering its interest expense out of its budget with historically low interest rates. What happens, and, the, and that interest rate right now is approximately 1.5%. That's the average coupon on the US Treasury outstanding debt, okay? What happens, though, when they roll all that new debt into or old debt into new debt and that coupon is much closer to three and a half or four percent? Well, your interest expense that you were covering barely one turn now is not even covered 50 percent. OK, so you monetize it. 
basically it's just a money printer keeps having yeah. to print now if then someone shows up no one shows up to the auction and the fed has to buy all the bonds what does that do to the us dollar currency it spirals faster because you have to print more of it but what does it do to global currencies as well the problem is the global currencies trade off the strongest currency which is the us dollar so the us think of it as concentric spirals it's mm -hmm. the us dollar is spiraling the drain or circling the drain like this and all the other currencies are circling the drain like this okay yeah. and and basically that is mathematics it's a good it's a good imagery and, and <laughs> so there's only two you can either accept inflation meaning you're going to reduce interest rates turn on the money uh, or keep interest rates at the current three and a quarter percent in other words getting to six percent or even four and a half to six percent is a pipe dream in my opinion unless you want to put the world into a global depression and if yeah. you don't then you accept inflation you try and float your gdp on side by inflation to catch up with your interest that's required on your debt and you use something called yield curve control and this whole fiat ponzi just accelerates in 27 different directions but it's the same mathematics so yeah the good point the good thing is clint for all your listeners all paths lead to bitcoin i don't care <laughs> which one the federal reserve picks because bitcoin will benefit in both cases the less painful one for my kids though i hate to say it i choose inflation over global depression that's just me why well, because inflation will cause global depression as well, but the global depression will hit harder in in, in the reverse. Like, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I yeah, think yeah. Okay. stupidly, it, it, it seems insane, but I agree inflation is the, is the least uh, painful outcome, specifically because there's an out for inflation. There, there is no out like for the average person. Like we can, we can let specific, specifically with Bitcoin, we can let the government die and kind of get on a life raft and kind of watch it happen while they while the titanic sinks um but well you say uh, you say that's the better for the average person but the average person doesn't own bitcoin so I, the average person doesn't own it exactly that's that's the problem is they they don't they're not aware they even need to be getting on a lifeboat like right. people are still kicking the ice around on the front of the Titanic, thinking that we're having a party and this, oh, it's just crazy. And the lights went nuts and we bumped, we, it bumped really bad today. But the band's just, still playing, guy. Come on. The still playing, you know? Um, but like in the context of uh, what Greg was just saying on like how I see what this, how this plays out, you know, everybody's thinking like, oh, the Fed's going to stay hawkish and they've got to keep raising interest rates because inflation is really important. Like the reason I say there's an aggressive time limit on this is because of what Greg alluded to right there is that eventually the interest payments on government debt will eat up our entire tax revenue. Like all right. of it. Like we have historic tax revenues. It's like $4.8 trillion, Correct. I think it was. Only but, because capital gains were so strong. And guess what yeah. happened this year? Capital gains ain't going to be so strong this year, fellas. Yeah. And, and can I, Guy, I love you, man, because yeah. you know that I'm, I'm not trying to talk over you, but trying to support you. I hate you, Greg. You guys You're need to <laughs> listen to the Stanley Druckenmiller interview oh my God. on oh, CNBC, I, I which it. basically is saying the same stuff. Now, Druck is the first guy that worked with George Soros that broke the Bank of England. Well, 
This week, the Fed broke the Bank of England. Isn't it sort of neat that, you know, it's it's it becomes circular and it's uh, the point is this drug poetic even it's drug sees it and he is worried and the guy has not lost money in his entire history of managing risk. I mean, you're supposed to listen to people like that. okay? so. And and it's again, it's only the I did math. Not know that that's crazy. Oh yeah, no, his average return is thirty percent yearly. Whoa! Like you Whoa. tell me, he doesn't know what he's doing. So anyway, um, understand that it comes down to the mathematics. And yeah, the math sucks. Uh, there is. Uh, I wanted to add one other thing, guy. I actually mm-hmm. think this breaks within the next ninety days. I I, because, I don't think. I think it's really short. I think the correct. elections, the elections, is by far essentially as far as it, they can take it. Because I think. Well, here I think they'll take yep. it to the elections, and then the mm-hmm. market will force their hands. Yeah. Uh, because ninety days is basically what we have, and you know I mentioned at the beginning of this uh, uh, of this podcast, you know, watching two systemically important uh, financial institutions in Credit Suisse and First and uh, Deutsche Bank. I mean, one of those goes down. Let's let's say Deutsche Bank goes down. Germany has to nationalize it. Germany's the sugar daddy of the EU. All mm-hmm. of a sudden, they're no longer the sugar daddy. The EU splinters, and it's pandemonium. Yeah, and if you want done. to be Jerome Powell and say, I am not rescuing the world, you can do that. The point is, it's easier to do it as soon as the midterm elections have completed uh, mm-hmm. uh, rather than trying to do it before that. Well, they, Not only other- with them trying to save the world, but like just it's funny, like our problems alone are insurmountable, but trying to take on the problems of everyone else, like we're, we're interdependent with our problems, like other people having problems worsens our problem because we've become so leveraged on the the idea of wealth that is actually someone else's obligation. You know, like our pension funds are somebody else's obligation. They have credit risk. Our retirements have massive credit risks. There are prices that are only sustained because of fake money constantly flooding into the system and being refinancialized. It's insane. The the way I see it and the, the reason I've kind of still made like everything hurts and looks bad when the Fed is getting hawkish and, you know, Bitcoin is down, risk assets are down, equities are down like all of this stuff. And it appears as if they're going to crack down hard on it. But I think what we're looking at is the aggressive volatility as things become hyper swinging one way or the other. You know, people talk about Bitcoin being volatile. It's like, like it's almost hilarious now. It's like Bitcoin is getting increasingly less volatile over its lifespan and fiat is getting way, way more volatile. Like everything is getting more volatile. It's like, bitch, you're going to complain about Bitcoin volatility. Look at the world. Look at the world. Look at what is happening. Volatility is the norm get used to it. Um, the question is, do you want volatility that grows and is and has a stable foundation? Or do you want a weak, dependent, leveraged foundation that sees volatility that gets wiped out by printing, that, that gets papered over by cooking the books? Um, and you get to pay for that, by the way. Uh, but when I see the, like the path forward here, the reason I see everything is, that Powell is doing is just kind of framing it's 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 just it's posturing it's you know hood ornaments on the car um it's just trying to make things look good for a short period of time is because if interest rates stay high and they have to and the government has to sell bonds to fund itself 
and nobody's, you know, nobody's buying and they have to do this at higher interest rates. We are going to quickly, very, very quickly in a matter of like two years, literally, like just like Greg was talking about is how much we have to roll over where tax receipts or tax revenue only pays for interest. Like where we just have no money for nothing. So if we want to be quote unquote responsible and the government takes the route that you actually, we actually are hawkish and they go Volcker, like uh, uh, a Paul Volcker in the eighties, you know, and, and they actually wanted to take that path. What you would actually have to do is stop paying out Medicare, stop paying out social security, stop all of the wars, stop, literally the entire list of big, ridiculous government programs that we are all dependent on and we think of as the norm would have to be shut down and they would have to raise taxes at the same time. So we're going to increase the pun. We're going to punish this generation. This is what we talk about when the next generation is going to have to pay for it. That's the only way it, is it gets paid for. Is that right. we obliterate the economy by just printing aggressively and buying our own bonds indefinitely. Like that's it. Do do you see the former as the path? We're going to just cut all government programs and raise taxes just to pay for our interest and pay down the debt. Well, the or the answer the answer they gonna is, own, they're going to buy their own debt. Yeah, the answer has always been we will allow the voter of the future to suffer as opposed to the voter of the now because then the yeah. politicians still maintain their their position of power. And I think that's that's probably the outcome that's necessary. What I think is fascinating is that because we've already seen a global financial risk in Deutsche Bank or any of the European banks, essentially, um, you know, UK being the most notable right now uh, in terms of countries. I think that what's fascinating is because we are so inter interconnected and because the the derivatives market has has tied us all together in a way that's so profound. You now have the central bank of the United States serving as a backstop to every money manager globally, basically. Um, and I think that's really, I don't think people have really wrapped their heads around the fact that the the Federal Reserve of the United States and as a result, the United States taxpayer is now the backstop to the global fucking economy. Am I, am I overstating that at all? No. no, that's exactly what it is. Now, the reason is because the USA has the petrodollar. Okay. It's very simple. It was once the petrodollar agreement was uh, decided, uh, it put the U.S. as the global reserve currency uh, and U.S. Treasury bonds as global reserve asset. There will be a time when Bitcoin supplants U.S. Treasury bonds as global reserve asset. That will coincide with when oil and natural gas are priced in Bitcoin. OK, mm -hmm. so the market will take care of this. But to add to your eloquent discussion, yes, it is the U.S. 10-year rate that basically sets the discount rate for the rest of the world. Very simple. It's always been that way. It just hasn't been this uh, contagious, I hate to say it, because when Volcker was able to fight inflation in the 1980s, when I first got my start in this business, all right, total debt to GDP in the USA was 30%. Now it's 125% total government debt to GDP. 
you ah, can't the good old be days. a Vol- you can't be a Volker when you have that leverage in the system right exactly. now. And that, by the way, doesn't include any of the state debt, doesn't include corporate debt, doesn't include all this other stuff that makes it worse. And there's thirty trillion dollars of U.S. debt, and guess what? A hundred and seventy trillion of unfunded pension obligations, Social Security, Medicaid, going forward. It's over, people. If you failed grade 11 math, don't manage your own money. But if you're listening to a financial advisor that tells you you shouldn't own Bitcoin, fire that imbecile because he does not, he or she does not know mathematics. The USA is, once again, only the best-looking horse at the glue factory. It's all about (laughs) mathematics, okay? You cannot, borrowing on Max Kaiser, you cannot taper a Ponzi, pure and simple. And if Fed chairman digs in his his shoes, global depression, civil unrest, EU splinters, probably war. I hate to say it, blame it on Jerome Powell. You should never put a lawyer in a risk chair, okay? It was mismanaged from the beginning. I cannot believe Powell is this foolish to have accepted a second term. He could have ridden off into the sunset last term. Indicates to me he doesn't know his mathematics and the debt spiral that the USA is actually in. So oh, listen, a, a, smart, a smart central banker would have got the fuck out of there when, right. he, when he had an opportunity to. <laughs> I agree with that. I agree with that. So this is the thing... You're talking about the unfunded liabilities is this is the price of free shit from the government. Like, I don't think people comprehend just how insane this is and what it means. You know, free market works because we input our values in every transaction we do. That when I decide to cancel my vacation because, you know, my kid has a medical concern or something or i get the car that i should i practically it practically works for me instead of the car that i want those are tough decisions those are decisions weighted by the blood sweat and tears of hours of my life of everything that i've done of the skills i chose to invest in of the path i took in school of 20 years of planning to get me to specialize in this one area, which I hope sustains itself in the economy, like the weight of all of the values, of all of the choices, of the dreams and hopes of the shit that I hope to do in my life is put into those decisions. And that's what moves the economy in the direction that I I value. It's, it's my movement of resources in the economy. And the average person in the United States, makes $2 million over their lifetime. Over their lifetime. And in that $2 million encompasses their entire impact to move the world according to their values. Where whenever there was a trade-off made, that their values are what directed the resources. And the free market is the, the culmination of that. It's the collective uh, average uh, or the collective results of all of our values conflicting and fighting to achieve our individual goals. Our unfunded liabilities amount to $2.2 million per person in this country. 
which means that all of the free shit from government amounts to deleting everything, every choice, every single value, every fucking trade-off that you made, every hard night of work, every staying up to get your kid to sleep, all of the pain and suffering and choices that we made and the values that we hope to see in the world are fucking deleted to pay for free government shit. All of it has to be erased. We have to go back to zero, to none of it mattered. Just to start to get, just to get a positive fucking one again. That is where we are. That is how bad, that is how irresponsible and fucking corrupt the entire shitstorm is. We have to be erased to get back to zero. So, Guy. That was powerful, man. It is powerful. And I love your math. I've never thought of it that way in terms of, I didn't know what the average uh, career earnings was for a citizen in the United States. And I also never divided the total unfunded liabilities by the population of the United States. So, you know, it's pretty cool. The number you throw out, two million. I need to add this right now, Clinton. I'm not sure if you give, uh, if you're allowed on your podcast to run Check through. Check that it's per taxpayer, by the way. Okay. So it's 2 million per taxpayer. I like it. Okay. No, 2 million per taxpayer. Yeah. But that's cool. My price target on Bitcoin is 2 million US dollars per Bitcoin in today's dollars, Clint. And I want to walk through, if you'll allow me very quickly, how I get to that number. Please. We, we, okay. So it's this simple. Bitcoin, in my opinion, as I mentioned, will become global reserve asset. And on that basis, I like to look at what the total addressable market of global assets are right now. According to the Institute of International Finance, there's $400 trillion of global debt. There is $300 trillion of global real estate. There's $100 trillion of global equity. And there's another $100 trillion of private company wealth, gold, uh, hard assets uh, that give your total addressable market $900 trillion US dollars, okay, in today's dollars. Is it crazy to think that Bitcoin could take 5% of that pie? Not, no. in my opinion, not crazy at all. So what's 5% of 900 trillion? That's 45 trillion US dollars. What is 45 trillion divided by 21 million fixed supply of Bitcoin? So over 2 million US dollars per Bitcoin in today's dollars. So I'm not 100% certain of my prediction but I like to play things on a probabilities weighted basis. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I say if the current market price is 20,000 and I have a price target of 2 million, that's one in 100. The market is basically telling me I have a 1% chance of being right. Again, we're measuring it in today's dollars. I'm like, okay, I'll grant it. I'm not a hundred percent, sir. Sure. But I'm way more certain than 1%. So guess what? I'm going to own at least 5% Bitcoin in my portfolio. 
reflecting my confidence that the price target may never be achieved, but certainly at $20,000, it is an extremely good insurance policy. And it seems to me to be extremely undervalued. Two things that I've looked for my entire career of managing money. In other words, Bitcoin is the greatest asymmetric trade and investment opportunity I have ever seen in 35 years of managing risk. Bar none. I've never seen anything like this. The technology is outstanding. Math plus code, you don't mess with. It's decentralized. I'm not a hostage to some knucklehead that is in some central bank somewhere in the world. And most importantly, fixed supply that can never change. Think of the difference between Bitcoin and gold. If the price of gold were to double tomorrow morning, do you think that the supply of gold would still hover at around 2% annually? No, Not in your life. They'd find new ore deposits. They dig that gold up and the supply of gold would be markedly higher than it is today. Yeah. If Bitcoin price doubles overnight, the supply of Bitcoin does not change. Okay, people, if you own zero Bitcoin, you are taking an extraordinary amount of risk relative to if you have a proper portfolio allocation, which in my opinion is somewhere between one and 5% of your net worth. Now, a guy is going to say, Foss, you're a nut. Why would you only have 5%? And I'm like, I don't. But this is what I'm advocating <laughs> for other people. I have more. But I also got involved in Bitcoin when it was 2016 and it was under $1,000 per Bitcoin. And I got a nice little uh, portfolio allocation. And that portfolio allocation has now grown to approximately, call it 25% of my portfolio, my total net worth, okay? And I'm not taking profits here because it's protecting me against the uncertainty on the other. Now listen to me, you stupid fucks, okay? On the other 75% of your portfolio, it's not in Bitcoin. And in the case <laughs> that you only own 5%, then it's the other 95% of your portfolio you need to focus on. Okay, so my portfolio is weighted there. 5% is what I advocate. And here's the kicker. Bitcoin is a better risk-adjusted investment today than it was when I first got involved in it in 2016 at 120th of the price. Why? Because I've seen what the government did with COVID. And I've seen the response of the central banks. And that indicates to me that my price target has a higher likelihood of coming to fruition. So it's like going to the horse track, people. You've watched a horse train and Kentucky Derby knuckleheads put down an 80 to one likelihood of him winning the race. And you're like, I don't know who these people are, but I've watched this pony train and I'm pretty sure that the odds should be closer to 20 to one, not 80 to one. So guess what? I'm going to buy that risk. And all of a sudden the guy wins. Okay. And this is beautiful. This is how you manage risk. You manage risk with expected value outcomes and tails that are advantageous to you. Once again, that's called asymmetry to the upside. And I'm going to leave it with you why I have been for the last two years telling people to sell their bonds. And I'm not telling you necessarily to sell your bonds as aggressively right now as I did two years ago, because the asymmetry of the bond distribution was to the downside. There was no upside. 
And unfortunately, the pension funds in the UK that also realized there was very little upside, but said, then I better lever the upside. And they start putting three times leverage on a position that they wanted to make. They wanted to turn in from a 2% yield to a 6% yield. Guess what? They just lost 50, 50% last quarter on that leveraged position. Holy shit. They lost 150% of the bond portfolio. These people should be fired for being intellectually lazy. And guess what? They're still the people that do not own Bitcoin. And as a father of three that is sick and tired of fat old white guys like me pulling forward gains that should accrue to my children, I'm outraged by the lack of moral responsibility at the central bank level and at the pension fund level that close their eyes and say, I know this is really bad, but I'm going to lever it just in case it's not as bad as I thought it would be. Fire these incompetent fools. Okay. I would, I would argue that, that many of them deserve prison. I mean, they have a fiduciary responsibility and uh, I I, ha- I was a fiduciary. I know what what that that means, and I know the the challenges that it that it entails. Um, but at the end of the day, like I couldn't have lived with myself if I didn't put my investors' capital in front of my own needs. And I don't understand if it's ignorance or or what what it is that allows these people to to function how they do without actually protecting their people. It's it's horrific. Uh, what I want to really dive into real quickly is. How is it possible that we could possibly see a G7 nation shift into Bitcoin? And the reason I ask this is because, and by G7 nation, I mean the central bank, uh, you know, getting a backstop of Bitcoin. Um, what, what's occurring right now with the Russia-Ukraine war, I think in the, the underlying current of justification for why we have taken such an antagonistic approach against Russia, as well as yeah, I mean, Libya and Iraq and all these other countries has beca- has been because largely they wanted to migrate away from the U.S. dollar. I think what you would see if if any G7 nation had the goal uh, to to actually backstop their currency with Bitcoin would be them being put on some sort of you know terrorist watch list, essentially metaphorically, and and I think that's the reason we haven't seen it. To be blunt. I think that they understand that it's like we're all in this fiat Ponzi scheme trap camp and we can't migrate out without the rest of these people saying you're now public enemy number one. And I think that's what's happening with Putin right now is he's become public enemy number one because and China to a lesser extent because they are now divesting themselves of U.S. treasuries. And, and you know, uh, obviously Russia tried to make their currency, the ruble, uh, exchangeable for gold. Uh, there was there's just lots of evidence to me that that if you try and go to a sound money system in, in a way that threatens the existing Ponzi scheme of fiat, that you become Osama bin Laden. Uh what do you guys think about that? Whoever well, guy, go ahead and hop in. If you think I'm crazy, please tell me. No, no, I think that's perfectly accurate. Um, and that's why even back in like 2013, I remember having discussions about like trying to play out the political atmosphere of it, which was, you know, a hopeless game. But nonetheless, like kind of theorizing, like like going to the game theory of as Bitcoin enters the political sphere. 
And it's fascinating to watch it now because so much of what was even discussed back then, I think is, I think we're seeing it come to fruition with El Salvador and, um, uh, yes. Central African Republic Republic and like these sorts of things, these, these smaller nations that are showing interest and are moving towards Bitcoin is that it always made sense that it would start with small, seemingly monetary irrelevant countries because they have the, the most to gain and the least to lose. They've always yeah. been little fish in a big pond, right? Yeah, the, the risk um, reward actually makes sense for them. Exactly, exactly. And not only that, is that for them to actually move to a potentially a neutral system that would allow them to trade with each other, that would allow them to actually be part of a mutual system rather than decide whether or not they're going to be monetarily dominant in their own country and have to manage their own currency, which means that it will now have to fluctuate against things like the euro and the dollar, like during a crazy chaotic environment. Or if they basically say, I just don't want this responsibility anymore. I want to, I want to back off and essentially hand it over to something that is managed for me. In a sense, you know, that's like that's why a lot of South American countries, that's why a lot of uh, smaller countries have dollarized, you know, because that's in its little way. That's what they're doing is they know if they create their own currency, it's just going to be a shit show. And then if they're in kind of an adversarial environment, because they don't have the, lar and the large enough economy to like really support it. And now they've got now they got a central bank like there's there's power that comes from it, but there's also massive consequences and massive responsibility. Um, and a lot of countries don't want it. But then there's a lot of countries that have just been under the thumb of some people like like the, the 17 or 14. I, I forget this. The CIFA CIFA nations in uh, in Africa, the ones that have basically been forced to use uh, the French currency and have been forced to hold all of their savings in French bonds. And you've got these sorts of relationships like where they're not really colonies, but they're definitely still colonies. Yeah. And uh, imperialism is alive and well, imperialism is alive and well. And these nations can see could see a way out potentially by just kind of embracing rather than attacking, you know, quietly, quietly, essentially just kind of open up, a, you know, open up a window and just kind of see like a minor way to exit in and out. Um, and I think we're seeing a lot of smaller countries, Nigeria um, is such a great example because the Nigerian government went aggressively against Bitcoin and they still saw one of the largest per capita adoptions Adoption rates, of Bitcoin yeah. in the world. And uh, and they've basically had to walk it back, uh, which is just beautiful to see. <laughs> um, and I think we're going to see a lot of that. I think it makes more sense to see 10, 20, 30 smaller nations start to embrace this. Nations that have always been monetary, uh, monetarily irrelevant, so to speak. Um, and suddenly, when one of them builds infrastructure, the other one has it. It's an open source permissionless system based on software. So when one develops an infrastructure, a, a new software, a new, a new protocol improvement, anything to kind of make their system easier, it's, it's suddenly on a standard. It's suddenly easily adopted by the other nation that has made the same choice. They start literally working together as their own little global economy. Because one of the big problems and why SWIFT is such 
a disaster and why international monetary like movement of international monetary funds is so is such an utter mess is because you have competing standards. They don't even speak the same programming languages. So like one, you know, a message to send money over Swift is not the same message that's sent into the banking system in Chad. You, you know, it's a, they've got their own totally different thing. It's it's literally needs translation upon translation and the counterparty risk through like five different hierarchies of institutions and it could just get lost somewhere in the middle and get frozen for like a week and everybody's like i don't even know what happened like i don't even know how to trace it back to figure out where this thing is going wrong um and all of them are taking a cut imagine being able to attach yourself to a global neutral standard where all you need is liquidity in your jurisdiction and not only can you move bitcoin you can move fiat that's the crazy thing is that this will actually make fiat work better before it dies is you can you can take uh, I think Jack Mallers talks about it with the peanuts and the potato chips is that if you can teleport if you can convert peanuts into potato chips it doesn't matter if everybody's allergic to peanuts you don't have to touch it you don't have to work with it if peanuts have the magical ability to teleport so if you're selling if you're buying Bitcoin in El Salvador let's say you're moving money to my Nigeria right you're buying Bitcoin in El Salvador and you're liquid enough to purchase you know, $50 million worth. Then you send it to Nigeria and you sell the Bitcoin in Nigeria. Then the person who received it only has Nigerian jurisdictional risk, Nigerian delays, Nigerian liquidity problems. And El the one in El Salvador only has El Salvadoran jurisdictional risk and El Salvadoran liquidity problems. Like they're isolated. The bridge was the that moved the money internationally didn't even move the money like it's it's just on bitcoin it exists in all countries at once it doesn't even it's just exchanging the keys on the bitcoin system there's no like moving from el salvador to nigeria it's kind of a misnomer of like failing to understand how bitcoin works it, it simply exists in both places at once the thing is is it's exchanging hands of ownership from one jurisdiction to another but it exists everywhere all at once so you're able to move the money and all you've got you've got a 10 minute uh 10 minute uh, potential settlement uh, 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 time. But then if you're using lightning, that could potentially be you, you could send $5 and settle instantly. And it costs you a quarter of a penny at the exact same time. You've got options. Bitcoin is a global infrastructure with multiple different paths. You can use liquid. You can, now Fediment is out, which is another fascinating new uh, technology being built on top of it. Basically, Chalmy and eCash is finally becoming a thing. But you've got this beautiful dynamic where the all of the international risks all of the international middlemen and the counterparty uh, the political adversarial environment is just obsoleted it's just like not there like the value is just in both countries and that's the only place that it ever exists it doesn't actually travel anywhere it just changes hands from the keys to a, jurisdiction A to the keys to jurisdiction B, and they can do what they want with it. Imagine what that can do to global trade in, the, in an environment where none of the global financial infrastructure is reliable. This doesn't even run on the rails. You don't. You can literally close your whole borders off and just do. Just don't. I don't even want to touch the banking system. I don't know what's going to happen to Credit Suisse. I don't know what's going to happen to BlackRock. I don't care. Just as long as I've got Bitcoin to my currency uh, liquidity in my country, 
we basically are still accessible to the entire global apparatus to anybody else who plays the same game. Well, I think think I about think, how quickly that can steamroll. No, I think I think can that steamroll. Sorry. That that's that's a, a beautiful explanation as to why Bitcoin is probably the answer to much of the control mechanisms that come from the legacy banking establishment. Um, what I'm what I'd like to hear uh, Greg hop in about is what I mean. First thing that happened with Putin uh, in the Ukrainian war was he was the, Russia was kicked off of SWIFT. SWIFT being the uh, the you know the the banking transfer system that the majority of the world uses. Um, what what does this look like moving forward where now we're we're migrating potentially from a cold war to a hot war i think the last line of defense in a cold war is ultimately the banking levers that they have to pressure people um i think after that bullets start to fly most likely and obviously we already have bullets flying via proxies but what what do you think that this looks like moving forward if these if these financial levers for control start to be undermined by Bitcoin, I think Bitcoin then then becomes viewed as a as a, an enemy and a weapon of war to the legacy banking establishment. That's that's my concern. Yeah, I heard that as well. And Guy, uh, I learned uh, so I actually learned more right there with Guy, uh, and and I loved his explanation. But it takes a while for your listeners to actually understand what Guy just said. I mean, that is absolutely for so sure. brilliant. But Here's what I would say. Okay, so look, again, I live in Canada. Uh, Canada has sold all its gold. Canada, Bank of Canada owns zero gold on its balance sheet, okay? And they sold it at the wrong time. And Canada has tons of gold mines, but the Federal Reserve of Canada, the Bank of Canada, has no gold. I think as a father of three kids whose bank is supposed to have some sort of uh, reserve assets, if you will, that... Uh, rely for my children. I'm not happy that the Bank of Canada owns a ton of US Treasury bonds and owns zero gold. So ultimately, as a Canadian, what would I like the Bank of Canada to do? I would love the Bank of Canada to put gold on its balance sheet. Is it likely to happen? Not likely, but not impossible. But just stick with me for a second. One of the reasons Canada's uh, fiat currency has declined less than the UK pound and the euro this year is because we're viewed as a commodity country. Okay. We have valuable natural resources, but my big question is as much as I love the USA, why am I selling our valuable natural resource energy, which is real value? We're selling it for essentially trust in a debasing U S dollar because oil is priced in U S dollars. As an aside, that's why the U.S. is so friggin' lucky, because they can basically print energy. Think of why that makes such an advantage to the USA. When you can print dollars, that those dollars are used to price energy around the world. Anyway, I would love for Canada's oil patch to start pricing some of their valuable natural resource energy in Bitcoin and creating a treasury for Canadians that is not throwing away our natural resource energy for an asset that I view as being eternally debased, okay? U.S. dollars and by uh, extension, U.S. dollar treasuries because treasuries are just a fiat contract. So would the Bank of Canada be wise to put some Bitcoin on their balance sheet? According to Greg Foss, yes. Chances of that happening? Almost de minimis, okay? 
That being said, it's not zero. And I have had conversations with certain members of parliament in Canada that are gaining popularity that see life the way I do as well. Okay. We love the USA. Don't get me wrong. But at the end of the day, we have to look out for ourselves as well. And responsible risk management would dictate to me that examining whether Bitcoin belongs on our balance sheet, as much as we love the USA, we're going to have to act in our, our, in our own best interest. And I'm throwing this out. There's enough people in the USA that are gaining the smarts that they view Bitcoin being held by the U.S. Treasury as one of their escape routes as well. Particularly, a shout out to a guy who comes across as a little bit uh, psyopish, a kid by the name of Jason Lowry, who works for the <laughs> U.S. Space Academy. Okay, now, love him or hate him, he happens to be one of the smartest guys I've ever met. Yeah, I've met him personally in Boston. He just actually got transferred to Cape Canaveral because his senior commanders like his thesis that Bitcoin can actually stop kinetic wars. Okay. The biggest threat to the United States, in my opinion, is that one of their enemies, and I hate to draw these lines, but everyone would say, yeah, Russia certainly is not friendly to the US, nor is China. One of those two countries starts amassing Bitcoin and will be able to control the global financial markets. That guy just laid out. Okay. So should it happen? Yes. Will it happen at a G7 nation? Probably not before it happens at a G2 nation, but it's not included, China, or a G8 nation, Russia. Okay? Like, you guys got to understand, there's 180 countries in the world, but most of them are mice nuts. Okay? They don't fucking matter. As much as I love El Salvador, it's... Six million people have the purchasing power of not even the greater Miami area. Okay. Like it just doesn't fucking matter in the context of a global economy measured where the USA is six, sorry, is a 24 trillion annual GDP. The GDP of El Salvador is less than the GDP of the greater Miami area. Okay. I hate to say it, but it is what it is. Watch what the big guys are going to do because that's the threat to the USA. Read research from people that live in America that support it and support those politicians that stand up for sound money practices for our kids. So I'll leave it there. I've talked more than I should and I want to learn more from guys. So that could be my exit from stage left, okay, only to say there are enough smart people in a country that I still view to be the freest country in the world, which is the USA, and people will argue, well, it's becoming less free and less free. I'm not arguing with that. But if you think that Canada even is a absolutely a fraction of the freedom we used to have in Canada, not even close compared to the freedoms you still have in the USA. So sure. get up and fight for your freedom. Bitcoin is freedom money. Bitcoin is hope. Bitcoin is built on math and code. And Jerome Powell, you are a shameful fucking risk manager for my children. Okay? You are an embarrassment to mathematics. You are absolutely the, the basically the identity of the Fiat Ponzi. Shame on you 
I am disgusted with people who don't tell the truth. Bitcoin is truth, people, pure and simple. Math and code, thank you from Canada. We live rent-free in your attic. Don't tell anybody, okay? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, I think that you're right. And, and I obviously, I, I think that, you know, America probably still is the freest uh, primarily just because of the position or our legacy. It's almost uh, frightening, of, but it's kind of true. Yeah, I know. And, <laughs> and, and I don't think that's, I don't bring that up as a positive note, to be honest, yeah. because I think we are not free. And, uh, and I think that it's going to be, it's an interesting corollary because I, I think of the, the freedom convoy in, in Canada, as we're talking about this. And I'm like, well, if Bitcoin is freedom, a freedom convoy is freedom and a freedom convoy got shut the fuck down very violently. Uh, yeah. I think that that's that's my greatest fear with Bitcoin is that because it does represent freedom, just as we've seen increasing, you know, totalitarian mechanisms for speech suppression against the social media platforms that we are on currently and very well may be kicked off of here soon. I, I continue to be concerned. I, obviously, I think that Bitcoin can't be stopped, but I think that it can certainly be slowed. And and I'm just curious as to Guy's opinion as to how they might do that, what we what we will likely see if, say, more nations start to acquire, more small nations start to acquire Bitcoin to back up their currency, to try and weather this coming storm. Um, I'm very concerned about global conflicts that that arise because of this, because mm -hmm. I think what we've what the U.S. has has proudly declared is that we are willing to risk world wars to defend the U.S. dollars uh position of global hegemony yeah so i mean i think that's a perfectly valid concern because life could be made i don't think they can really do much for bitcoin itself like they can't stop bitcoin um just i mean it's designed for exactly this sort of adversarial environment and it's one of those things that they would have to go so hard so aggressively so completely to do everything that they possibly can to destroy bitcoin and the real problem is that if they fail bitcoin gets so strong and they are they look so stupid and incompetent if they don't kill it and i don't think they would and i think that's, I, th I think that's a really important point to dive a little bit deeper on why yeah. why does it get so much stronger if they fail to kill it because it's an anti-fragile system. It responds like the people build the tools necessary in order to, uh, well, first the, the network itself, it's like a, the block size war is a great kind of like micro example of uh, when a huge, huge number of people started running nodes that would, were never running nodes before. And, uh, and a number of different attack vectors were suddenly exposed and realized and essentially the code um, the, the code, the, the, the clients, the, the way people interact with Bitcoin was shifted in a whole lot of like mantras of not your keys, not your coins, run a node. You know, if you're not verifying, you don't know shit. Like, like a lot of these things have specifically come about from adversarial situations in the past. Like Bitcoin evolves a lot like life because it's a product of life. It's, it's a product of people building and using this system and we're all financially incentivized we're we're tied to this thing and it can change 
too quickly from the context of resiliency and robustness. Like a great, another great example, and one of the crazy, crazy bullish things that happened in, I think it was late 20, it was like mid 2021, I think it was like May ish or something, was when China banned Bitcoin mining. And we actually saw 50 or 60% decline in the hash rate in a matter of like two months because so much of it was actually based in China. And then over the, a period of like the next four months, it all came back. And I, I, I want to emphasize how insane that is. Think about any network, any infrastructure of any product, service, anything that you use could lose 60% of its underlying infrastructure, could shut off, travel, disperse all the way around the world, find a new energy source and cut back on and nobody using Bitcoin would have known if they weren't reading the news. Nothing happened. I used Bitcoin, Lightning, nothing changed in my day-to-day -day usage of Bitcoin. It worked like it has always worked. That is fascinating. That is an unbelievably resilient and robust system. And that's its very design. Is It's how do you create a stable, reliable monetary consensus with unreliable humans, nodes, and infrastructure. How, how, do, how do you keep the system itself working even though you know half of it might literally be gone tomorrow and you need to rebuild it? Um, and that's the beauty of like keeping nodes tight as, as in the context of like very low bandwidth, uh, very low. Like I run it on a Raspberry Pi in my house still. I've been running it for been running nodes for God knows how long. I don't know since I got into Bitcoin a decade and I can spin one up in a day in a day. I can spin up the entire Bitcoin system from Genesis to today and validate every bit of the every bit of the data in it. No questions asked. Audit the entire thing. And I am participating in the network. I am now a relayer. Um, and in doing so, like imagine what kind of and, and some of the adversarial things that like the Bitcoin engineers have thought about, like the fact that like the Bitcoin node doesn't even only pull time. Like, like what time of day it is from your jurisdiction. It, it specifically, there's like these subnets, uh, like sub breakdowns of the internet that use different uh, oracles, so to speak, of what time it is. And it will literally grab from like three at random just to make sure there's not like a time-based attack where they're faking what time of day it is. It's like, and imagine if this gets attacked what we will see as a potential problem that blo uh, blocked the network, that you know caused bloat somewhere or segmented you know portions of the network, like it's basically already designed to make sure that it can escape the Great Firewall of China. You can run it over satellite. So if China just decides no more Bitcoin traffic, China is not going to fall out of consensus. We are going to squeeze through every single crack, and Bitcoin is going to remain global Bitcoin. And if there is any way that they cut it off, we'd figure it out. And that would be the thing, is that we would figure out what path they use to cause the Bitcoin network and the infrastructure itself a problem, and we'd have a solution. We'd have a new client that figured out how to get around it or how to sneak in you know, uh, you know, just enough blocks into, into China to reorg and get everything back in order. Um, and... So if the United States or if a major country attacked Bitcoin, they would have to go all out. They would, it would have to, they would literally have to take 
everything that they think of as like their weapons of war and they would have to refocus on obliterating Bitcoin. And there is still a very, very high risk that they would fail. And if they failed, imagine the blunder. Imagine the political embarrassment. I think they will stay hands off. I think they will attack it the way they've always attacked everything in the context of they'll attack exchanges, they'll try to over-aggressively regulate, they'll make a problem for Bitcoin nerves, not Bitcoin. Mm. And mm -hmm. that is a risk. But in the context of like the G7 nations and like just kind of big modern countries, I think there's something to consider is... And, and I think we're seeing a lot of this in the cultural sphere, too. I think we're seeing the same relationship and the same patterns. Is when everything's going great, people don't want to rock the boat. You know, even yeah. over an issue that's important to them or that they're really annoyed about. You know, in, in the 90s, you, you let the woke just happen and you don't talk about it and you just you just you know you you be polite and you're just like and they're like oh are you a racist and you're like no i'm not a racist you know like and 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 it just it just squeezes into everything and it infiltrates because people don't want to make things uncomfortable when they don't have to make things uncomfortable they don't want to turn it into a fight and when somebody's saying i'm going to turn it into a fight unless you use my pronouns or blah, blah, blah whatever well then the other person just backs off but when the boat is already rocking people right. get sick of that shit People get sick of it. And I think the same applies to nations challenging norms, breaking agreements, Brexit. Great example. As things start looking bad, ah, maybe I'm sick of this. Maybe this isn't working out for us. What do the next two years look like in that sphere? How much political cohesion do we really think we're going to have? And as that political cohesion falls apart and as we see these charts of all these currencies all these major reliable stable currencies plummeting and all of these nations having to buy their own bonds aggressively is it really so out there to think that one of them might just be like i'm about to stockpile the shit out of some golden bitcoin and i'm sorry i'm sorry i know this makes you hate me but I don't really care. We hate you yeah. right now. You seem to hate us right now already. Everything's going to crap. You just blew up our freaking oil pipeline. Like, ah, I don't really care if you hate me right now. I, I look at the the new, I forget what her title is, prime minister or whatever of Italy. Um, yeah, and I see, a great I see example. Great these, example. these right wing populists that are, that are rising up against all odds because the entire, you know, neoliberal world order is, is obviously in, direct opposition to this type of leadership and i see it as we just need one of those people at the highest levels of power in any major country i don't know if italy would would qualify probably not but you know other other nations out there you could see it happen in in uh, in the uk or perhaps in america um where you have leadership that says i am actually going to put my people first like what a novel idea right and uh, and if that occurs and you see them take even a two or three percent of you know gdp or their or their tax receipts and they put it into bitcoin i i think this is an important time to ask you guys why have we not seen a decoupling of bitcoin from the broader market because to me and to most fans of bitcoin 
the expectation was that in times of crisis, but more importantly, in times of inflationary crisis, that would be the best time to be a Bitcoin holder. As the inflation kicked on, we saw the inverse of that. And I think I understand why, but for the audience's sake, if either of you could explain perhaps why that's occurred, I'd appreciate it. Well, I'll go first, Guy, because uh, I always want you to have the last word, okay? And that's <laughs> not my style, but for you, I want you to have the last word. Okay, so first of all, Bitcoin is a hedge for monetary inflation, not CPI inflation, okay? So you have to look at things that's happening with uh, the money printer and this, they're, they're, they're saying they're gonna do quantitative tightening and it's hilarious because they haven't even done any yet. Like it's so small, the amount they've done <laughs> and yet the, the wheels are falling off the bus, okay? Like so, and, and the math is you cannot quantitative tighten because you need to print for infinity because of the debt spiral you put yourself into. But in the short term, risk assets will trade according to how Ivy League, 24-year-old Ivy League students that are hired into Wall Street and have a computer science and statistics degree decide that risk assets are going to trade in Wall Street. Ivy League kids, of which I was one, who know sweet F.A., they know shit about fuck, okay? But they can follow correlations and say, well, it's correlated as a risk asset and it has been working. So keep doing what has been working until it doesn't. Now, the funny thing is risk happens fast and correlations break even faster. This is exactly the market Bitcoin was designed for. Okay. It was the Genesis block actually quoted the chancellor is going to bail out the uh, exchequer uh, or excuse me, the chancellor of the exchequer is going to bail out the banks once again. Okay. Okay. We're in the same situation right now. This is why Bitcoin is designed. Thank God it got designed 13 years ago because now we have the tool that it was designed for. How long it takes the knuckleheads that manage risk to realize this? I don't know, but it goes slowly and then fast. Ray Dalio understands that Bitcoin is the solution to his risk parity model, which is now kaboom because he can't trade bonds against equities. He's done some correlation adjustments, but the reality is Bitcoin is the solution. The problem is it's still too small of a market cap. If Ray Dalio's Bridgewater got involved in Bitcoin, the price would triple overnight. Okay, so it's it's sort of like a first mover advantage. Same thing comes if like as much as I'd want the Bank of Canada to put Bitcoin on their balance sheet, can you imagine what that would do to the price if it got announced out there? Like, Jesus you know, Christ. so it's a rounding error. People are overthinking the fact that it happens to be correlated to risk assets just because some Harvard kid has decided to program his algo that it's going to be correlated to long duration technology stocks. That's the problem because the kid from Harvard hasn't done his homework on what the properties of Bitcoin are. If it's insurance, like I think it is, people will realize it's the flight to safety trade. And I think you're feeling it a little bit now. I can only use anecdotal evidence. Who the heck do you think is buying the shit out of Bitcoin in the last week? Brits, British citizens. You're seeing the volume coming through those exchanges that are at all-time highs, as it should. So I don't get panicked about this, Clint. Very simply, I'll talk to you in 20 years, okay? This is a 20-year time horizon for me. 
it's still the best asymmetric trade opportunity, investment opportunity I've ever seen. You can interpret it however you want. I think of it as insurance. And again, I need to stress this. If you get 5% of your portfolio in this insurance, that's not your risk. Your risk is still in the other 95% of your portfolio, people. Please wake the heck up, okay? But that's not how people tend to invest. They're always like, oh my God, I got this 5% thing over here. Do you know that Intel Corporation stock is down more than Bitcoin this year? Well, you never, never hear that about it, it, Intel, but you could argue Netflix. that Intel is just as strategically important to the defense of the United States as Bitcoin is. Hmm. But people accept the fact that Intel can go up and down. The reality, Bitcoin is volatile, yes, but volatility is the price of return. If you show me something that's not volatile, I'll pretty well guarantee you that its return opportunity is like one pretty flat straight line, lower left to top right. Who cares? When interest rates, when uh, inflation is running at 8% and you're going to get a low volatility asset that gives you 2% annualized returns, good luck on you. It's a pathway to the poor house. Right. Learn math. Understand that if you lever these stupid 2% annual return opportunities and then it blows up, you could probably manage money at the UK pension funds. You failed mathematician fools, okay? <laughs> you tried to pick up a nickel in front of the steamroller and you got flattened. You deserve it. Learn how to manage risk. I, I said I had no hard cutoff, but I didn't think we'd go till 1 p.m.-ish. I'm going to leave the last <laughs> word to you, guy, okay? Clint, okay. I love being on your show. I like you guys' styles. Always listen to Guy Swan. Take it on out, Guy. Uh, if you guys want to stay on, I'm going to have to jump off right after. No, please. Here. Please. Yeah. Thank, thank you so much, Greg. Hold on one sec. I got to thank our other sponsor. And that is, well, if you're if you're not uh, taking control of your life, if your life is on autopilot, uh, Bitcoin is obviously a good example of what we're talking about is maybe taking a little bit more control of your life. Well, you have another aspect in your life that you can take control of right now, and that's open enrollment is here. And that means now is the time to take charge of your healthcare decisions. We all know that the system isn't working, but thanks to CrowdHealth, we can do something about it. CrowdHealth puts your healthcare back in your hands, cuts out the middleman, saves money, and funds your healthcare costs without relying on big government or big insurance companies. You can see any doctor you want, no deductibles, exclusions, or co-pays. You only pay the first $500 of any healthcare event. The CrowdHealth community takes care of the rest, and there's no exclusive doctor networks, no huge premiums or high deductibles, and no surprises. You just pay one low monthly total to fund your account. So if you want to do that right now, open enrollment is the only time you can hit the eject button on the broken system without penalty. So do not wait. And for a limited time, join for just $99 per month for your first six months when you use promo code lockdown at joincrowdhealth.com. Again, that's $99 for your first six months. I pay over $500 a month for my insurance. <laughs> and I'm a healthy young man. Come on. Well, kind of young, not, not so young. Anyways, uh, again, use code lockdown at joincrowdhealth.com. Again, promo code lockdown at joincrowdhealth.com. Crowdhealth is not health insurance. It's a totally different way of paying for healthcare terms and conditions may apply. And we will wrap this up with Guy Swan's uh, breakdown as to why we have not seen a decoupling of Bitcoin into uh, into the broader market, because uh, I think that's what a lot of Bitcoiners are asking themselves. 
Uh, there's a really great episode actually I, I covered on uh, a read by Stephen Lubka um, uh, for uh, uh, he writes for uh, Swan Bitcoin, or at least this was written on Swan Bitcoin blog. Um, and it's a really great piece on understanding that this is not what Greg started off with was spot on is that it is a it is a hedge against monetary inflation, not CPI. CPI is a massively lagging indicator. It is way down the line. Look at what happened to Bitcoin when we went aggressively money printing, when we dumped $3 trillion in those stupid plans to save us from the pandemic and all of this stuff. What happened? Bitcoin went from a few, like, you know, four, dollars $4,000, $9,000 to $69,000. That's what happened when that was going on. What we are now seeing is a credit contraction. And... It, it is behaving just like all quote-unquote hard assets. Equities, gold, Bitcoin, it's all playing the same game. I mean, Netflix has gotten demolished to essentially the same degree. I mean, uh, he was just talking about Intel. And uh, I, I think in the, like, these things are, this should have been expected with the way the market was treating it. And the market still completely fails to understand what Bitcoin is. And I think it's going to, begin to realize it. And I, and I think the imperative of trading internationally in an environment where none of the international rails work anymore, or they're increasingly breaking, essentially all of our pipelines, no pun intended, are falling apart and blowing up everywhere around the world. We're shout out to the Nord Stream. Rest shout peace. out Nord Stream, baby. Um, is they will have to have something. And the traditional tools simply won't be there. I think a lot of people will end up moving to Bitcoin out of necessity. And it's interesting that we're actually seeing Russia create a policy right now um, in like trying to make a Bitcoin and crypto policy for international trade. It's because I think they're seeing that their rails aren't dependent. Like they, 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 don't, they literally don't have the infrastructure. I think what Russia might be trying to do and what we might see across kind of BRICS nations in general is trying to just like a little bit leverage Bitcoin because ultimately the value of a money in the utility of a money in its trade is its liquidity. So Bitcoin is still small fish, right? Like Bitcoin is still liquidity. You can't move $500 billion from one country to another in Bitcoin, right? You have to have liquidity to buy and sell sell of the equivalent amount in each country in order to not just skyrocket or tank the price completely in doing so. Um, but it's getting there. It's moving into that sphere of just big enough to start to handle 1% of somebody's trade to, to start to really be a player in that game. And as it reaches that position, I think a lot of these countries are going to try to lean on it just a little bit. It's like, okay, we need some sort of Avenue. We need some sort of infrastructure that we can get around that isn't reliant on the dollar apparatus that is now being used as a weapon to control us. And as they do that, I think they're going to think that this is at least my hope from what I, I see and kind of how they, they appear to be positioning it is that it's just going to be a crutch, right? We're just going to use it for a short amount of time. And then we're going to implement our CBDC. Then we're going to implement our dollar replacement infrastructure that all the BRICS nations are going to use. But I don't think they realize that it, it won't walk back that you can't, create a an environment that requires essentially no trust like incredibly low trust 
and then push it back to a system that's entirely counterparty um, dependent and requires a staggering amount of trust and is back into a politically controlled environment. And there's no way that they don't politically control it. Russia's doing the exact same thing in the reverse, right? They're saying this is what you have to use to trade with us. And this is this is how you like they're, they're basically playing the game They're they're Russia's playing monetary defense and uh, the U.S. is playing monetary uh, uh, offense. Um, and as these things occur and and I was also going back to like my previous point, I think 30 small nations are orders of magnitude better for Bitcoin than one big nation. But I don't think we're I don't think we're far away from one big nation hmm. starting to make a play, uh, make a position. And I I suspect they will try to use it as a crutch to get across the bridge, to, to get across the gap in order to get to their CBDC or their alternative system because they're competing with the dollar, but that they won't be able to walk it back because it will work too well. And the whatever they are trying to replace it, it's like the internet versus the AT&T, is that no matter what AT&T tried to build in their, um, or AOL online, like in their uh, uh, curated internet experience, it is impossible to keep up with the internet. You right. can't centrally plan something that moves faster, more efficiently, and develops better standards than something that is decentralized, particularly in an open, permissionless environment. And as they start to lean on it, the liquidity explodes, and it becomes a, it becomes a means where, like so many other countries, I think, could get on board so quickly, particularly in like the small country um, sphere, because you know, without the government, without the U.S. government protection of just like, don't worry, trades, everything's going to be fine. Greg, dude, good hanging Let, out, man. No, that was that was tremendous, Greg. If you could just uh, briefly tell people where they can follow you, because uh, I know you got to run. I yeah, guys, I hate to cut. They uh, at Foss. Yeah, Greg Foss is a social platform that uh, has gotten the better of me. Um, I cannot believe that people <laughs> listen to what I what I uh, I think. And uh, oh, they should be listening. I appreciate it, brother. Um, I'm involved with a learning education platform as well. Uh, it's called lookingglasseducation.com. Uh, it's a free uh, platform for people to understand everything they don't teach you in college about the Fiat Ponzi and why you need Bitcoin. So lookingglasseducation.com, uh, at lookingglassedu is the Twitter handle, and then Foss, Greg Foss, uh, if you want to you know, get a 35 year old, uh, or 35 year veteran of the credit markets. I try and send out some, uh, some stuff on that because credit runs the world and then credit will give it up for Bitcoin to run the world. Take it away, guys. Sorry, guys. Uh, love being on your show, Clint. It's great to meet oh, you. That, that was tremendous, so Greg. Thank you. Good Have chat, a good one. Greg. Take it easy, dude. Uh, guy, I hope you can hang around a little bit longer because I, I would like to dive a little bit deeper with you, but, uh, you were still talking, so go ahead and finish up your uh, thought. Yeah if, yeah, if you remember so, where you left off, I, I do sort of. Um, <laughs> um, but in that, essentially in that environment, I think as I think we will decouple because Bitcoin will cease to be purely a financial hedge, purely a because because like I said, I think that's how it's been behaving is a risk asset, um, and it will become a critical piece of trade. And essentially, at the end of the day, Bitcoin cannot increase in supply. So if its network increases just in general use to to settle international trade um, and uh, yesterday's piece, actually, the, the I just read it on the show was um, uh, Stephen Lubka's piece on inflation was read 
Oh, six. Hold on a second. 643. Read 643. Um, and the this other on one Bitcoin was. Bitcoin Audible, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, on Bitcoin Audible. Sorry. Um, yeah. And then yesterday. I'm just giving you a plug. By man. Shinobi. <laughs> thank you. Um, uh, uh, by Shinobi was uh, why Bitcoin will replace Swift before it replaces Visa. Um, and I think, I think that's a really critical mindset or, or framing to understand with where I think the next two to three years of Bitcoin are going to go. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, eventually that decoupling will happen. And it will, I think it will happen really, really quickly when it does. Yeah, um, so. Because it, it will be by necessity. And then there will be a speculative bubble for an entirely new market that is realizing what the value of Bitcoin is. And I think it will happen with the banks first. I think the political apparatus is apparatus of the world will um particularly of the modern world and larger nations will be kind of aggressively against it but i think the banks are actually going to embrace it they're going to need it um mm. especially as everything implodes they are going to want any semblance of a way to not go under to not just get wiped out and i Look, think can, can i add something there yeah, the money printing is going to start to fail at the job. There's, there's, there's only essentially so far it can go when you're, the value of your money is being completely threatened across the board. You just don't want to hold cash. Well, that, that and I also think that the implementation of central bank digital currencies in many ways that I don't think most people recognize yet will supplant the necessity for banks and other and insurance and a yeah. whole bunch of industries that I think are they're not odd. Yes, they are. And I don't know that they've realized it yet. And I think that that's a really fast, fascinating fight that we're going to see. And, and when mm -hmm. we see it, not just the banks, not just the insurance companies, but also the pensions, the pensions that are trying to maintain an ROI that can keep them solvent are yeah. going to be forced to look at some asset classes that they have not in the past. And I think that Bitcoin will be at the, the top of the list as to a way to hedge themselves against profligate spending from central banks globally, printing presses, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I, I strongly believe it's just, for me, it was confusing because even though you guys are saying we're witnessing a deleveraging and to some extent we are, but because we still, it's not as if they've shut off the printing presses. It's not, it's not as if that money has been absorbed from the economy in terms of, you know, the, the money supply. Uh, it, it has only been absorbed in the sense that asset asset prices have come down because we're in kind of a, I guess, a recession or, or, or well, think a, about it back a, a bubble to, bursting. Yeah, think about it back to what I was saying earlier is that you have to grow or you die. Mm -hmm. um, is that if it doesn't grow fast enough, we're just getting bled by interest payments. We're getting bled by our financing. So there's True. a net negative. Yeah. There, there's still a net loss on essentially the amount of money that's available to chase things in the system if we're not aggressively money printing. Um, and I think we're going to go back to aggressive money printing. I think we've had this period where we're pretending we're going to be hawkish and that the Federal Reserve isn't going to just be printing $8 trillion. And I think we're just going to have to wake up one day and print $8 trillion. You know, mm -hmm. it'll be like the gilt markets, uh, the UK government bond market, where they just have to oh, whoops, well, now we have to buy all of it. And then the Bank of Japan says the same thing. We have, we're unlimited buying our own bonds. I think 500 billion too. yen. Like it just... Crazy. I, I, I don't think 
I don't see any other way out of it. Like I said, I think the alternative is to just cut all government programs and have zero government services whatsoever and raise taxes at the same time. That's the only, can't, that's the only yeah. way out. If you we're not you can't do it. You can't do it. I mean, yeah. the, the, I mean, <laughs> we, we had riots over police brutality. Imagine if people <laughs> don't get their government payments for even a month. It all would your be... retirements are moot. So sorry. Yeah, no it, would be, no it would be bedlam, dude. I mean, and, and I think that's, that's why ultimately I have to conclude that Jerome Powell at all, all of them are going to have to reverse course. And, and what's, what's funny is that right now, basically all other central banks other than the U S central bank, the federal reserve have already come off their even quasi hawkish talking points. Like pretty much every other central bank has already reversed course or, or has not gone even close to as hard as Jerome Powell has. And I think that the think U.S. About how soft the going hard. Well, yes, I really is. I like, know, but I mean, comparatively, know? he looks like a fucking lunatic hawk. No, you know? I know. I, but that's <laughs> the crazy thing is that that is the, you know, in the notion of it's all relative. Like, holy right. crap, the worst, the crazy hawkishness is like historically softness. Right. You know, you're like one, one and like a half percent. Painfully nothing. <laughs> you know, like it just insane. Yeah. That's no, I. I agree, and and I, but but what I I think Powell is doing is obviously he's still trying to keep the U.S. dollar as the strongest currency in the world, and and I think that there there is some prudence in doing so, especially because of the position that we're in. We have the capacity to be harsher now. The problem that I'm not sure that he's privy to, because every other Fed chair in my lifetime has failed to identify the same systemic risks. They always see the shit after the fact. They always push the lever a little too hard until you start to see other blowups across the global economy. And then they reverse course. They go the opposite direction too hard. It's always an over-adjustment one way or the other. And I think what he's going to experience, and unfortunately what we are going to experience, is major banking institutions once again proving that the Dodd-Frank rules and regulations, all the other shit that has allegedly solved all of the uh, leveraging and, uh, you know, solved. Yes. Yes. Uh, all of the, the risk that is, uh, you know, counterparty risk, all the, all the risks that are, are broadly held across the global economy have not been remedied whatsoever. And, and you're going to see major banking institutions start to have the same issues that they had in 08, 09. He's going to have to reverse course, uh, printing press, you know, QE, uh, reduction in interest rates, uh, the the whole the whole normal gamut of tools, they're going to have to utilize them, but they can't utilize them as aggressively as they would like to, or probably will need to, because of the inflationary pressures that exist within the system. So, what do you think about 2023, man? I my I, and I I know I've been a bear for for three years now. But my honest expectation about 2023, 2024 is it will be the worst global recession, depression, probably depression in our lifetimes. That's my honest expectation. And I hate to feel that way, but I do. What do you yeah. think? Yeah. 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 All right. It's not going to be any fun. Um, <laughs> <All right. laughs> but, you know, in it's also important to... You know, everybody's talking about like what happened in Bitcoin in, like the last four months and or six months, whatever the hell it is. I don't even know. It's such a short time frame when you think about this and like the big For picture. Sure. 
like we got to remember something is the it's size still up 300 percent from two and a half years ago <laughs> Jesus. but and and to, like think about it like this though is that like look at the waves that the internet has gone through look at look at something that was like an explicit technology that was like right in your face look at all of this stuff that we can do with this that you can't do with any alternative and people still didn't get it right like people could not wrap their heads around it they had to literally be given the service directly in their hands on a mobile phone before the revolution really happened that was like 25 years into it and we're 13 years old we're 13 years on bitcoins and monetary networks monetary networks are about trust Monetary networks are about uh, trust, and money is ultimately a promise. It's a promise that the the shit that you already made and gave to the economy, you're going to get back, and you hold Mm -hmm. a promise in place of it, right? It's just a token for the stuff you've already done. Um, so everything it's a a broken token. It's a broken token today, Um, (laughs) but everything in the value of that is how reliably it holds that promise, and. When people have no way to assess the promise, like when, when we come from an entire, I mean, generations upon generations that only know the promise as a guarantee from some giant institution, the idea of a decentralized money is laughably ridiculous. Like they don't, there's, there's no frame of reference. There's no Overton window for understanding what the hell this thing is. That knowledge in the market is going to move incredibly, it's going to be incredibly, incredibly difficult to get into the minds of people because it's, it's an entire worldview shift for most people. And at the exact same time, the trust is breaking down in the old system. So we're being forced to ask the questions about what money is, about what these things are happening, but or what these things are that are happening and what is causing them. And I think that's going to be a very, very slow transition. But historically, money is like a century long like monetary shifts take literally hundreds of years historically literally like historically it's a crazy crazy slow transition if you think about what bitcoin has accomplished in 13 years on a global like looking at like half a percent of everyone around the globe that's unprecedented we're moving at the we're moving like a bullet train right now when it comes to monetary transitions like so people talking about what's happened in the last six months is just like such noise because we're just so used to everything happens now everything is immediate you know we constantly overestimate what can happen in two years and drastically underestimate what can happen in 10 and i think that's what we're looking at right now i think that's kind of the place that we are in bitcoin the market still has no idea what they have no idea what this thing is um they're still treating it like some just weird risk asset because they're like okay there's just a number of them therefore it should i should buy it when somebody's printing a lot of money and when there's credit contraction leveraging i'm going to stop speculating on it and i'm going to i'm going to sell it right that is that is the whole context of where we are but it's slowly eking its way into the background of the banking system it's slowly making its way into settlement of international fiat payments you know taro just just got released on bitcoin which is a way to actually um issue fiat issue dollar tokens like stable coins or whatever that are just backed by some centralized institution and send them both over bitcoin and over the lightning network 
And I think I think we're in this place that we saw just like the AT&T networks when we finally went to digital infrastructure is before before the Internet, you're on your AT&T phone, you know, you're on mobile uh, phone network, an analog phone network. You call across the country. It was a really bad hiss. You have horrible long distance fees. People forget long distance fees were like a thing, like a really serious thing. You had to like count your fucking seconds that you were on the phone. Oh, I remember. Um, and suddenly, like one day, like those things just started to fall away. We weren't all using the internet as consumers, but the this somehow the back end was shifting and the hiss went away in the phone line. The long distance fees, all the new services didn't have any long distance fees. And it was just like, you know, maybe you got to pay a little bit extra for an international plan or something. And all of it just got better, but nobody really knew why. Well, it's because your analog phone was no longer analog across the country. It went to a local hub turned digital and then went over the internet infrastructure and turned back analog at the other end. I think that's where we are in Bitcoin. And people don't realize that uh, sub like past the 1999 dot com bubble, there was actually an additional infrastructure bubble that lasted into 2001, where we're just putting out lines, putting out fiber lines and cable lines and trunk lines all across the country in order to connect stuff because it wasn't dead. And uh, and the, the people who knew what the hell they were talking about knew that the investment was still there, that we were rushing to get this thing out. And that infrastructure doesn't go away. When that mm -hmm. bubble burst, the lines didn't disappear. The cable didn't stop transmitting. Nothing changed. Just the investments turned out to not be that great of investment. And they changed hands and they restructured and they still had the bandwidth. And I think that's what we're seeing right now in Bitcoin with the tools that are coming out right now, with the, where we are in the bear market. The financial, the financial institutions are not stopping. They're not just like, oh, Bitcoin's done. Like financial institutions are plugging into this thing faster than they have in a while. Um, and I think with what Jack Mallers is doing, with what Jack Dorsey is doing, with Stanley Druckenmiller is heavy on Bitcoin, and that guy's a genius. Um, and, oh, I didn't uh, realize that Druckenmiller was involved. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, he has some really cool, really great comments on uh, Bitcoin and just kind of like the idea of like investing in Bitcoiners. Um, He's got some ass puckering takes on the current global economic sphere. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I, um, I'm not at all surprised that he's now interested in Bitcoin. Yeah. But uh, with that, I think we're going to see the the banking infrastructure start to behave a little bit better. Um not in the sense of like the financial system being solvent, but in the system of like we can actually move money and think about it in the context of fintech is that fintech has always had this huge problem of they wanted to build software, but they had to plug into a permissioned banking system, which was a nightmare. They had to get licenses and insurance and, the, you know, approval from the local reserve board and all this bullshit like this mountain of gross regulatory uh, red tape and everything. Imagine that they can actually like ride around that, that you could send money from Cash App to Venmo, which you can now because of Bitcoin. They don't denominate it in dollars yet, but I think they're going to. Mm. I think it's going to happen. And suddenly Cash App and Venmo don't require a withdrawal to the bank and a deposit to the, the other service because they're no longer walled gardens. They speak the same monetary language. They speak Bitcoin. They speak sats. And I can send $10 in Bitcoin from my Cash App to a Venmo user. And they may never know that that's what's happening, that it's only because of Bitcoin that that, that, that transaction actually occurred. Um, 
And as that comes to fruition, what you do is you build this liquidity base. Like I said, money, money's ultimate uh, value is liquidity at the end of the day. The reason a money is a money is because it's the most liquid good in the economy. That, that's kind of its, its raison d'etre, right? Like that's its mm -hmm. definition. As that liquidity grows, it becomes more and more valuable. It becomes more and more secure. And it makes more and more sense as a portion of the market to have a little piece of it. Not investing in it necessarily, but have a piece of the network. Mm. You know, when, when Bitcoiners are 0.5% of the market, it can be ignored. When it's 1% of the market, it's like, okay, that's, that's interesting, but um, I'll think about it next year. When it's 5% of the market, that's profit margins. That's profit margins for whole industries. It's unignorable. It's like, it, it'll, I think it'll happen like kosher, you know, is that you get 5%, 10% that simply know what this tool is used for, know what its value is and need, like they demand its use. And it becomes a large enough market that everyone has to participate because it kills their margins if they don't have that extra thing on the end. Right. You have an intolerant minority and essentially it becomes adopted across the board. And when that sort of thing happens as a, as a service and as a, a tool in the banking sector and as an infrastructure, and when that happens, the supply can't move. The supply of Bitcoin cannot change. The only thing that can change with the growth of the network is the price. Right. I don't know what the timeline is on that, but I, I don't see how it gets smaller. Interesting. I, I think uh, another a few areas of, uh, of concern for people or, or things that might teach us some lessons. Um, for, for one, you know, Japan has, has been phrased as a, a bug in, in seeking a windshield for like 30 years now. And I think <laughs> they, they, they may be hitting their windshield currently. Um, they, they are essentially monetizing their entire debt like their pe debt payments at least. Um, and, and what's also interesting is that simultaneously the UK who, whom tried to go the same path as Jerome Powell and our central bank by hiking rates and starting quantitative tightening, they realized very rapidly, like within months of doing so that as uh, Greg said earlier, Deutsche bank, other, other huge uh, banking yeah, institutions credit with Suisse. Yeah. yeah, credit Suisse within their, within their country, uh, ultimately could not survive that what's what's interesting though is that they are experiencing the same inflation we are if not mm -hmm. if, if not worse so um even with those pressures yeah i think i just they, saw uh was it man i don't know i'm not i'm not gonna remember the specific i was just le reading something that like just jumped to like 17 percent inflation yeah. In like a matter of like a month I mean, some of the inflation numbers are just insane but but what's interesting about that is like this is what we're talking about where Jerome Powell will have to make the same decision. Like, yeah. are you going to allow your banking institutions to blow up or are you going to sacrifice the people via, yeah. via severe inflation? And it looks to me as if the UK decided yesterday or Monday that they're going to allow their people to blow up <laughs> as opposed oh, yeah, to Bank of England bailed out BlackRock basically. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that because of the relationship and I've, I've reported on this, ad nauseum the the fascistic <laughs> relationship between the the biggest money managers on earth the black rock state street vanguards all these guys and 
and the central banks of the world, um, they're going to side most likely against the people. And what yeah. do the people do in response to that? Um, I don't know if you have any input on that, but I, I would love to hear your thoughts. Well, uh, I actually did an episode essentially on this. Well, very perfect. recently. Um, it was uh, Guys Take 59, and I've gotten a lot of great feedback on it. I just kind of ranted about all the shit that's happening. Like, I see Bitcoin as an anti-authoritarian movement. You know, so many people think sure. this is about designing the fanciest toy um, and having the most gadgets. And I'm like, nah, dude, you're, you know, you're making... I view it as an escape. You're making smart, you're making you know, smart light bulbs and toys when what we need to be building is a castle. We need to be mm. building a digital castle, digital bedrock to build something on. And everybody's so focused on what we're doing on the 13th floor with the window trim. Um, <laughs> and like, that is, that is what I see when I look at shit coins in general is it's just like, they even dismiss things. Like you're talking about like, Oh, well you're, you're sacrificing like people aren't even running full nodes you've changed the definition of what a node is to make it okay that nobody's validating anything but like the last hours worth of the entire system so if it goes down for an hour you have zero way to prepare like like if, if this thing goes down your whole thing is just 100 trusted you're just all going to call the ethereum foundation to figure out what consensus is which means it's not fucking consensus it's just some centralized institution that you're trusting it can't survive even a slight crisis um and and that's like, how fragile this whole fucking thing is it's crazy and, and they're like they're like that's not a big deal we've got these really fancy shiny gadgets and <laughs> you know the banking system is going to embrace us and politics is going to have to let us do it it's like no you've already bent the knee you've already bent the knee you've already admitted that that you have to give up everything that matters like this is an anti-authoritarian movement it needs to be able to stand up to governments like that is the point of bitcoin is the separation of money and state if you're focused on building toys and, you know, like browser extensions at the cost of validation of your base system, at the cost of decentralizing the consensus, you're, you're not even playing the game. You're not even participating in this. You're oh. just hoping that we ease through this really nice, soft future where, where everybody embraces Bitcoin and crypto. And I don't think that's the future we're headed for. I think we're headed for a future that is very angrily against Bitcoin and what it stands for. I mean, I think we're, I think we're there. I mean, yeah, I nobody to, seems to really minor extent. Yeah. I mean, it, we're we're seeing all that we know. We already know what all the narratives are going to be. We already know how they're going to frame it because they framed it. They've already put it out there. It's the currency um, of the the white supremacist movement. It's the obviously, the currency of the extreme right wing right su white supremacists <laughs> and the and the climate deniers and the people who want to boil the oceans. <laughs> like that's what it is. Um, and also a little bit of child child porn in there for some reason. Um, but you know, we're going to a totally digital future. We're going to lose cash. We're going to have a financial wipeout. We're going to have a deleveraging event like nothing the world has ever seen before. Like it's going to be a shit show. Yeah. 
because we're we're just starting. We're just in the first innings of this thing. It's going to be a disaster. At the other end of this, we either have a centrally controlled, totally surveilled, dystopian credit score carbon digital carbon prison CBDC, or we have an open permissionless system that is solid as a rock that can withstand the adversaries who want to see WEF coin, that want to see the CBD system, that want to surveil you, that want to know that you can't be a part of the infrastructure. We have one or the other. I really think we have a choice between either the dystopic Chinese social credit score system or Bitcoin, or as aggressively decentralized as we can possibly get. And fuck, I am running my own node. Like, I'm just, I don't even want to think about the fact that I've put $2 worth of investment in the alternative. And I don't care if, like, I could make a 1,000% return in dollars, and I'm only going to make a 20% return in Bitcoin. It's like a 1,000% return in what? I lost everything to get some dollars? Like, I said in, like, if, if those, if that really is our choice, maybe I'm crazy, maybe I'm wrong about all this stuff, but if those are our choices, that's not something you go half in on. There's no winning on the other side of this. Bitcoin is the only path. And, fuck, like, that's what Fa- Failure like is not an option, man. I, I love, I love, I love the passion and I love the, the warning that you're giving because I've been giving the same. Uh, what I find funny is you and I, um, you know, the first time I think we spoke was a little over a year ago, probably. And and at that time, we we both had a much greater sense of like, this is going to happen eventually. You know, like it's like, it, just happening right now. No, I know. I know. But I, I just think it's so interesting because, yeah, um, you know, both of us were were far less uh, concerned about the inevitable end of fiat occurring imminently. We yeah. were like, like yeah. it could, it could. Oh, how naive we were. <laughs> I know, I know. I just, I just think it, it really demonstrates how, how rapidly things are deteriorating. That, you know, you, you're now seeing protests in Germany, for instance, to utilize Nord Stream. That was happening on Monday. On Tuesday, Nord Stream was blown up, probably yeah. either by the UK government or uh, our own Navy, uh, Navy SEAL yeah. battalion, most likely. But. Uh, I just think that like things are speeding up in in ways that I neither of us really expected at the time, and it, and it's funny because at the time I think I was asking you questions like why are the people not rising up because we were in the teeth of lockdowns when I first yeah. had you on, and and I think at that time we concluded people won't rise okay. up until financial pain is so significant. That financial pain is now, yeah. and. And I think that's the really interesting thing about this is like, as I continue to to try and decipher, will the central bank side with the people for their own survival or will they side with the banking and money managing institutions for their survival? And I don't know what the answer is. Um, and I just think that, that that is ultimately going to be the true test of the, the coming decade is which direction do they go and how ugly does it get from a populist rebellion type mind, uh, you know, outlook. And I don't have an answer to that. I, I, I don't know that. I don't know that the banks even know. I don't know that the, the central bank. I don't think even anybody know. knows. Nobody. I, it's, it's I mean, but it, mm. it has the potential for escalating in 2023 
in ways mm-hmm. that I don't think anyone is even remotely prepared for. Um, I don't know. Any comments on that? I agree. I don't think anybody's ready for this. I don't think anybody understands what's happening. And what's funny is that, you know, usually, usually, you know, when you go through a crisis like this, um, well, like this, we haven't done that before. Ever. Yeah, the, um, yeah, I was like, but, this is not something that the world has ever seen. I think people don't understand <laughs> that either. Yeah. When you go through a recession, though, a normal recession in an economy, the beauty of a recession, a recession is a critical part of the free market system. Vitally it necessary. It's the fat. It, yeah. it destroys the irresponsible and the insolvent and the responsible and the solvent get all of their stuff at buyer sale prices. Mm-hmm. You reallocate from the people who essentially caused the imbalance to the people who have protected against the imbalance. You have, you, you rebalance, right? Um, but because we have, it's so crazy how bad it's gotten because we've gone through like three or four crises essentially to get here. Mm-hmm. And every single time we've disallowed that transition from happening. Yes. We've, we've prevented that correction, which means we've run out of the solvent. We've run out of responsible people. They all went out of business. <laughs> they all paid for the bailouts because you didn't get a bailout. If you were solvent, you got a bailout. If you were 40 X leveraged, And think about it. A 40x leverage means you grow 40x faster than somebody who is one, you know, who is who actually has to have a balance. So you grow 40 times faster during the bull market. And then you're the only one that gets bailed out because you were irresponsible enough to be 40x leverage. So the literally the solvent and responsible are priced out of the market. They're just deleted and. What happens is you have this culture that thinks irresponsibility and like develops this nihilism about the fact that nothing matters because nothing does matter. Nothing mm-hmm. is real value. It's all fake prices built on top of cooking the books. And you have a completely, totally politicized economy and then everybody blames it all on fucking capitalism. Um, I, I think I, I just I have to add in my own personal story because mm-hmm. I am one of those people. I, yeah. I, I was a private money mortgage broker and I did so with zero leverage. I All I used was real wow. people's capital to wow. real borrowers, no leverage whatsoever. And I did that for over a decade and I was extremely successful. But, you know, I obviously on the in the bull market side of things, I, I never got anywhere near to the amount of income that I could have if yeah, I were to have leveraged them. You underperformed. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I would I would underperform competitors, but I was okay with that because I was a, a single man shop. I I just uh, you know I ten ninety nine uh, any people I worked with and mm-hmm. didn't have any employees, sole sole proprietor type deal, and and it was extremely lucrative. And and most importantly, I I didn't ever have any because I wasn't functioning on leverage. I never had any imperative to take outsized risk to kind of maintain that that gravy train. It was like okay, if I don't see a good deal for a couple weeks. I don't do a deal for a couple of weeks. Like I, I don't have any, uh, there's no requirement that I fucking Cash loan. Cash is a position. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and, and But these guys don't have that mindset that like it, they have to keep going, especially, especially the pension funds. Like they have to keep making their five or six or 7% expected rate of return over every fucking year. And if they have a down year, then that means they have to make 9% for the next three or four years to compensate for that, to try and yeah. make themselves solvent, to pay out the pensioners. They get margin called. 
They literally exactly. got, that's what happened yesterday or whatever. Like they got margin called. Yeah. Pensions. So, so that's crazy. I think, I think that you're exactly right though. And that, that's the reason I wanted to bring my story up is because I exited the industry entirely in May of 2020 during the lockdowns, because at that point I could no longer evaluate macro or micro risk. And I was just like, well, this is fucking lunacy. I'm just going to tell all of my investors who are all retirees who all re re rely on this income. Hey, this is going to end terribly. And I wish you great success, but please be very cautious with whoever you end up investing. And I'm sure many of them went on to invest with competitors and things like that. I'm sure many of them entered the stock market. I hope some of them entered Bitcoin at that time because it was a it was a great entry point time. Um, I, I would imagine very few of them did because they're all older folks for the most part. Yeah. Um, but I just Boom. think that that the point the point you're making is really important is like anybody who was a truly you know sound money type sound investor uh underwriting in you know money manager is just like they're pretty much gone dude like like there's so there's so few people left in this investment world that have my outlook like and and i think mo many of them have probably transitioned to being you know bitcoin uh investors and, and or gold precious metals things of that nature um Anyways, I, before we get out of here, I, I, just for the audience's sake, well, first off, please leave a like if you've enjoyed this. This has been tremendously informative. I hope you guys have have learned a lot. I certainly have. These guys are brilliant. Um, and uh, also, obviously, subscribe, leave a comment, help out, share it around. This this could save people's lives legitimately. Like this is really really valuable information, and it doesn't get talked enough about, and it certainly doesn't get talked enough about in a in a longer format, which I think. This was really valuable. I wanted the audience also to know that Guy and I will be on part of the problem with Dave Smith on Tuesday to do this with oh, Dave. God. That's yeah. going to be phenomenal. Uh, it's going to be second time we've done that. I think we're going to be doing it probably two or three times a year moving forward. Unfortunately, as the fucking global economy gets completely insane. Um, but before we get out of here, I wanted It'll to talk about a scary show. Yes, all yes. The great news. Well, I, I would recommend people go and listen to the first one we did because <laughs> many of the predictions we made during that have already come true. I mean, that's <laughs> so, where we are. It's it's kind of nuts to like for as bad as the Fed predictions about everything are. It's funny that like get four jackasses on the <laughs> Dave Smith show and they can get. They'll get it all right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We, we're They'll, nailing it. Like just one, arm, a hundred for a hundred, baby. <laughs> our armchair economists over here. Uh, yeah, they would be better off replacing Jerome Powell with any of us, even Robbie the Fire. <laughs> <laughs> even Robbie. <laughs> I love the dig. I love the. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just kidding, Robbie. I love you, buddy. Um, so before we get out of here, I do want to talk to you briefly about the real estate market because I think you know that's kind of my area of expertise, but I think it's a, it's a really confusing time because there's so many factors that went into the environment that we are now experiencing. Uh, first off, you have, well, first off, first off, you have 30 years of consistently reducing interest rates, building up leverage. Uh, then you have uh, the financialization of the market, which allows for uh, increased uh, leveraging and collateralization that are cross collateral. Like, I mean, it just, it gets so extreme in the, in the leverage side. Then oh, yeah. you have the lockdowns with, uh, you know, the foreclosure and eviction moratoriums, uh, you have bailouts that happened to the banks in 08, 09. I forgot to mention that. Uh, so you have increasing risk that that is kind of backloaded, which doesn't go addressed. Um, you have Dodd-Frank, which is window dressing to addressing it, but it doesn't actually address it. 
sorry, I'm getting sidetracked. There's so many things that go into this. And then you have the foreclosure and eviction moratorium, which which reduces the inventory that's available for purchase. So you have a shortage there. Then you have the lockdowns, which break the supply chains, which makes uh, in, increasing the inventory harder and harder to come by. Uh, it also increases the input costs for those that are producing that inventory. So they now have to get a higher uh, ultimate sales price to justify that investment. Um, what else? Now you have a, a, an increasing interest rate cycle where people that, are, unfortunately, we don't have adjustable rate mortgages to the extent that we did in 0708, but that's still going to be a minor issue. But more importantly, because of the higher interest rates, there's no end user if you want to sell today because the vast majority of people are no longer qualifying for these extraordinary prices. So in the interim, I think we see a bear market in real estate, but for sure. But because of my belief that Jerome Powell and all of the other central bankers across the globe are going to have to reverse course and go the inflationary route of QE and everything else, I think long-term real estate could still be viewed as a buy. But in the interim, I think, I it's, think it's a buy. Yeah, yeah but in the interim, I think fucking do not touch it. That's my yeah, assessment. So any anything you disagree with there? So no, no, not at all. Um, In fact, I have made my own personal bets in that route hmm. essentially is that I was expecting, I was expecting everything to get hawkish and to have a collapse in the real estate market. But then it would be prior to, I guess it's kind of happening at the same time, but it hasn't really aggressively happened here yet, but it's starting. You're starting to see it. We're looking at houses just kind of casually. Um, and I'm increasingly seeing, Oh, price drop of twenty thousand dollars, and right, right, and you know right. it, it's it's starting to creep in, and the mortgage rates are pretty pretty steep, um, for like in comparison to what we have now, um, and I essentially t structured loans and stuff in the context of trying to build out our basement and stuff during this time, so that with the intent of refinancing when the bond market breaks and the QE comes back in a flood. I mean, it's a yeah. bit of an aggressive bet. Like, like that, that is, that's I put myself one. in a, I put myself in a slightly risky position, but I didn't do it to a point that I couldn't manage the debt. If everything went up, of course, went away from me. Um, so I'm, uh, let, I'm let not, me just, I'm not an for, idiot, but <laughs> for the audience's sake, let me explain that the interest rates went from on average about 3% for 30 year mortgages all the way up to 6% in about, I mean, less than a year. So yeah, very yeah. dramatic swing. Pretty it's still, yeah. it's still not outrageously high in terms of interest rate. But what you have to keep in mind is that prices are at all time highs. So yeah. if you have a 6% cascade quick, yeah, you have a 6% mm -hmm. mortgage rate on starter homes that in much of the country are six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollars Obviously in the vast majority of the country, there's still starter homes in the four to $500,000 range. But in the, in the areas I like to live, uh, they're they're extraordinarily expensive yes yeah. <laughs> uh, no no bullshit though i'm building six houses right now and they are they're all under contract at 825 mm -hmm. a door and they're fucking wow. 2200 square foot start homes they're, they're, there's nothing God. special about them so this is um my expectation <laughs> so is is 2023 we see probably a 10 to 20 percent decline in pricing and then you see fed and every other central bank reverse course mm -hmm. you start to ultimately i, I would imagine by 2025 2026 uh, the, the real estate market is is higher than it is today. And I think people will be surprised at my expectation there, but I, it's strictly based off of inflation. It is not yeah, based off of not like fundamental, value fundamentals. Or, yeah, 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 fundamentals, yeah. Um, no, I 100% I agree. Um, and I think there will be a sweet spot in the 2024 range probably 
Yes, of, that would be uh, when I'd be buying. Interest probably. rates and financing have shifted way, way, way down, but prices are still low because the market hasn't returned. Um, and that's kind of what I'm fingers crossing for, essentially, is that zone. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But no, uh, if you play it right, I mean, it'll be tough because it's it's always so hard to time it. But I think you might. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, um, real estate's a tricky one just because it's in the long, long run. Um, in the short run and mid run, I think real estate is a really good bet. In the long run, I think real estate still has a systemic problem because it's been used as a monetary premium for like 50 years. Hmm. Um, like, hey, could it you is, explain that a little bit? Yeah. So the price of housing is not relative to the utility of housing. Hmm. Um, it has become the middle-class savings account. Um, like everybody uses their house. It's everybody talks about, it. you got to get a house it's an investment and you got to get a mortgage. I put equity in the house and then you loan out against it. You refinance it. Like I've done this like on my own house. And if you think about it in the context that the, that your house got more valuable as it rotted a little bit and, you know, right, the right, siding right. kind of like started falling off in a couple of different places, like everything got less like, like the house does not, it degrades, you know, it degrades slowly, but it's kind of like a car. Like yeah. it shouldn't go up in value over time. It's, it's an appreciating, is, depreciating asset. It's fascinating. It's, a, it's an appreciating, depreciating asset, but it's because it's developed a monetary premium. People use it just to park wealth. And rich people in particular, like there was a statistic that I read in one of my pieces. Um, I think it was one by Alan Farrington. I think, I don't know. It was like two years ago now. It's, it's so deep. Who knows? Um, but, uh, uh, it was a statistic that said that a third, a third of luxury housing around the Manhattan area sits empty. Mm. It's just being used. To, it's just a place to park cash. Dude, because cash sucks. Miami, it's like half these yeah. condos are empty. Yeah, because the inflation occurs where there's financing because the new money is debt, right? It's issued right. as debt. So mortgages are the place where the middle class get access to the, like that's your, that's your attachment to the money spigot. That's how you, that's how you drink uh, from the fucking spigot is you get the financing to invest in a house. And then the real estate actually goes up in value because that's where that portion of the spigot is going from. Like, you know, what's funny, what's funny. This is the only middle class or upper, upper middle class access, access to the Cantillon effect. It's it. That's it. That's, that's exactly right. That's exactly yeah. right. And I've never that, even thought about that. A strong monetary premium, but that monetary premium is going to go in. It won't. It will take a long time. It will take a long time. But in an uh, in a world where you actually have sound money, the monetary premium disappears for stuff like that, and it goes back to its utility value. Now, real estate, like land itself, is always in some form or fashion scarce. Um, sure, but it should not. It will never be, and it wasn't before. Uh, like the fiat era, it will not be, it will be an investment of your life. It will be an investment in how you want to live and like a thing right. that you actually need for your family and to sustain yourself. It's freaking shelter for crying out loud, but it will <laughs> not be a savings account. Yeah. Well, it will and, not and, be something that you constantly leverage to get more money to buy stuff. Right. Which is what it's become. And I, yeah. I think it's, it's interesting because it's, it would be such a paradigm shift for, particularly the American people, I'm sure this is a global phenomenon sure. too, but, but in Amer in America, particularly because of the tax treatment that you receive for it, you know, you get to write off your interest. Yeah. You get to, you also yeah. get uh, up to 250. If you're married up to a half a million dollars, 
uh, tax-free capital gain. There's no other asset class for a poor person or a middle-class person that, that gets that type of treatment. So they have incentivized us to go all in on housing. What's fascinating, though, as someone who's building houses right now, I understand the the development costs that go in because of the regulatory environment is so extraordinary, mm -hmm. dude. Like it has taken me over four years to build these six houses. And I mean, granted the lockdowns fucked that up to a large extent too, but yeah. even without that, it would have taken me two years, like for sure. So the, the city planning department, you have crazy amounts of fees throughout that entire process. Then you have mm -hmm. the inflationary pressures that come into the, the supply side of like the actual material costs, the input costs to, to build these units. It's extraordinary. The, I mean, lumber went up hundreds of percent briefly during the lockdown period. It's now coming plummeting down because all projects are being mothballed by developers because they're seeing what I'm seeing and they're saying, hey, mm -hmm. 2023, we're fucked. Like we got to sell yeah. the existing inventory that we have and we have to sell the inventory that is it like imminently in the pipeline. It's going to be built. We have no choice. We can't turn back. But all the other stuff is being fucking mothballed right now. So um, I think that that tells you a lot. That tells you that the expectation yeah. from the developer side is, hey, this gravy train is about to go kaput. So we got to we got to liquidate. We got to migrate to other things. What I think is interesting, though, is that BlackRock has been acquiring single families in such a you know aggressive fashion and and a bunch of you know big Ten money millionaires are going to own everything man oh i think that's that's what's what's interesting is like do these guys liquidate from those holdings and and if they do how bad does that decline in 2023 2024 look because yeah. if they do holy shit does it get bad because you could go from having a shortage of inventory bye -bye. <laughs> yeah well no so would i but I, i'm just saying for the people that that no, do I only own bad. one home and it is their entire life savings like that is ca catastrophic It'd be awful yeah. yeah so you know i from my side I, I do the same thing you do i look at the the potential the opportunity the upside but mm -hmm. for my audience's sake i'm like hey just so you know <laughs> if blackrock or these other this money managers might be in your future yeah. yeah they if they decide to liquidate these holdings that they have been uh you know aggressively pursuing well, holy shit, it can get very, very bad very, very rapidly. So I don't know that they'll do that. Uh, so I, I can't possibly predict it. But if you see that, if you see the Black Rocks start to liquidate, holy shit, you got to sell. That's all I got to mm -hmm. say. Yeah. Or plan on holding for 10 or 15 years. That's it. Yeah. Or just know that you, you got a house so you can live in it. It's not yes. it's not a savings account. Yeah, um, or, or just view it money. that way. But yeah. I know for most I mean, people it is a savings that's account. That's where I am. So, like, I mean, you know. yeah, yeah. Um, like we've been, uh, trying to do, we had three phases we, we broke up this project in the basement or whatever into like three different portions. Cause we had to tear out all the, uh, uh, cinder block foundation and put like the pillars and everything and put in steel um, to do what I wanted to do down there. You'll and, like um, learn to know, learn to node. <laughs> yeah, baby. <laughs> that's what, that's what um, we tell all the people that are going bankrupt. Just learn, learn to, to know. <laughs> <laughs> um but uh quote unquote phase three was supposed that he was like yeah yeah we'll finish it before rad gets here right for for our kid kids four months old we hadn't even started phase three yet he's just trying to line up people and get supplies and like yeah, deal with prices and everything it's just like it's, it's it joke. is it is a fucking nightmare as yeah. I, I will never ever develop real estate again in my life i was always yeah. on the lender side so i didn't have to deal with all the heartache and and brain 
trauma that I've experienced yeah. doing this, but my <laughs> God, my God, is it brutal. And, yeah. um, I don't, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy, but it's, it's crazy because in the place that I'm building, which is San Diego, there's a tremendous need. There's so little, uh, new housing in that area because it's all been built out for the most part because it's coastal and, and all of these, you know, I, I just feel so bad for, you know, my generation, the millennial generation, as well as the younger generation. That's like, I want to get my foot on that economic ladder because I've saw my parents get rich from it because they just rode this 30 year cycle of, of decreasing interest rates. And, and now we could potentially be looking at a few years of increasing interest rates. I don't think that's going to be the case because we've already explained all the reasons why, yeah. um, but it would be, I mean, that's just, that's just how all of the middle class has always gotten to be upper middle class has been housing and if that changes well then they're going to have to figure it out very rapidly and i i obviously you're a believer that bitcoin will be that avenue um but it's just it's just heartbreaking man it's like all these people are just trying to keep their head above water and the central bankers of the world are just constantly trying to fucking drown them mm -hmm. drives me insane i don't know how man. people don't have more animus towards these fucking scumbags that's basically right? what i'm saying <laughs> yeah Good God, the number of people like we need to just let all the drug the drug offenders out of prison because they're better people and <laughs> put <laughs> put the bankers, the politicians, the mandate enforcers and like all these uh, at least a drug dealer would know how to evaluate counterparty risk. Right. Right. <laughs> they're businessmen, man. They're solvent. You can't like you can't sell drugs you don't have. I would um, rather have fucking Pablo Escobar as Fed chair than <laughs> Trump. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god dude but it's a mess Anyways. man i feel like i feel like that scene i feel like we're in that place that scene in the short the big short yeah um, yes where those two guys are celebrating that they just made a ton of money on their their cds's and everything uh and then uh brad pitt uh rickett J james james rickert or whatever yeah uh says stop it shut the fuck up <laughs> this is People just lost their homes. People are going to lose their jobs. Like people are going to be devastated. Stop celebrating. And then, and then that one guy's like, "Oh man, I just got really scared." You know, like that's kind of what this feels like right now. Yeah, it's, that's that's where we are. Is, I think. Well, let let me just uh, for the audience's yeah. sake, let me give you a little silver lining. You now, after listening to this for two and a half hours, understand what we're up against better than 99.9% .9 of people on the planet. You have yeah. a competitive advantage. Take advantage. Do not allow, do not be in front of the steamroller, sidestep it, and then fucking pick up the pieces once it runs people over. I know that sounds harsh, but it's just the reality. There's, there's some things that we have control over, and there's other things that are just completely out of our control. What we can control is our own financial future, and we can actually, if you can see what we're discussing today, you actually have the capacity to get out of the way and find your way to a better, uh, greener future. So I hope you guys will do it. Anyways, Guy, please tell people where they can follow you, man. This has been phenomenal. Yeah, man. Yeah, for sure. Always always a good-ass time, Clint. Hell yeah. Um, uh, I do the show Bitcoin Audible. Um, if, you, if you've never listened to the show and you want to get like an idea, like the basic idea of the show is that I read anything and everything about Bitcoin and the macro finance and economics and everything that's going on to try to make sense of it. And also to just like make really great analysis of other people available to listen to. 
easily and coherently. Um, and then I give my own commentary on it as well. But if you want to get the why, I mentioned it earlier, is Guys Take 59. It's 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 a pretty recent show. It's like five deep or something, six deep. Um, it's titled We're Not Going Anywhere. Um, and I tried to lay out, it's like 80 minutes long, but I tried to lay out why I am Bitcoin only. And it's that little rant I had just a minute ago on why I think Bitcoin is being built as bedrock, not a toy, um, is kind of a preview of the framing I had in that episode. Um, and I think I think it's a good one. Like I said, I've gotten some good feedback on it, so I've been trying nice. to share it a little bit more. But uh, yeah, I, I cover why I think Bitcoin is the most important thing happening in the world right now, and that includes the debt, the historical debt disaster that we have. I think I think Bitcoin as a way out um uh shines as absolutely you should not ignore it i don't care what you do about bitcoin you should not ignore it and in the context of what you just said clint is the worst thing you can do is nothing like act the reason we're here the reason we're in all of this mess is because we have sat by and let incompetent corrupt people run our institutions for us we we have we have absolved ourselves of responsibility by letting someone else take it for us and now we're complaining that they did a bad job well the only way that you're going to get them to not do the job is if you do it yourself take it on welcome the responsibility because it means that you don't have to watch somebody else fuck it up and act do something take one small thing or consider one decision on how to protect yourself in this coming storm. And if things get bad in all the ways that you can think that they get bad, how can you weather that? How can you, you know, if you're, if you know you're going to be massively underwater in your house, are you ready to just live in this house for the next five years, 10 years, you know, um, have that frame and learn to node. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> learn, man. learn to node. Uh, learn I, a little I, bit about Bitcoin. I, I, I just want to double all the difference in the world. Yeah, I just want to double down on that point. Like, there is a tremendous uh, reason to be nihilistic and give up right now. Yeah. I, like, I wouldn't blame anybody for feeling completely black pilled and and absolutely hopeless. I would encourage you to fight that instinct with every fiber of your being. Like, you have. In a severe bear market, you have opportunities that will be so abundant and so much like the ROI, the expected ROI on those investments during that period will be better than anything you have ever seen in your life. So that is an opportunity. You can view it that way or you can view it as, oh, shit, I had all these plans that were in works and now everything's fucked up and uh, fuck, it's all broken. I go the opposite route. I go, hey, as a counter cyclical you know, bear market investor, which is where I've made the the majority of my wealth throughout my life. Trust me, look at this as an opportunity. You can come out the other side, even though your friends, your family, everybody else is going to suffer. And that is tragic. And I'm not downplaying at all. You don't have to be one of those people. Don't be one of those people. I want people that value liberty in particular, which I know every single motherfucker listening right now is one of those people to be better off 
than the plebs. <laughs> I'm just being totally honest. I want you guys to help me because if you have resources, the people that value liberty are the ones that have the resources. Moving forward, we can actually build something beautiful. Take this opportunity seriously. Do not be hopeless. There is tremendous reason for hope. In fact, there may be greater reason for hope than has ever been in my lifetime, as dark as it is right now. Have hope. Thank you guys for tuning in, and make sure you subscribe to Bitcoin Audible. Thank you again for joining me, Guy. It was great. Later, man. Appreciate it. Big shout out to everybody that's been with me since Jump Street. Appreciate y'all. Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go? It requires a fight, not tweet from your phone. Don't need a king. Get him off the fucking throne. If you're riding with the top, you've always got a home. The virus is scared of the This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.